VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, January the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning to get the year off to a flying start. That can only happen when you give us a call, get in the queue, and on the air to talk about a topic of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well... Happy New Year to you. Hopefully you had the opportunity to enjoy the holiday season despite a variety of the woes going around, whether it be travel-related or respiratory illness-related. Pretty quiet on the home front for me anyway, but hopefully you've had an opportunity to decompress if you were able to over the holiday season. And let's get back at it today. I think I'm speaking on behalf of many when we're happy to see 2022 in the rearview mirror. Now, there's lots of lessons to be learned and lots of opportunity to learn from what's gone on. And maybe we learn some hard lessons the most difficult way possible. But if you want to do a little reflection, we can do it, as well as talking about today and looking forward to your hopes, your worries, your thanks, your wants, your needs, heading into 2023, and away we go. One thing that kept the holidays quiet for me was latching on to the World Junior Hockey Championship. Now, you know, for Mount Pearl, Zach Dean got off to an inauspicious start in the tournament opener on Boxing Day against Czechia. Now, a hit that he wasn't going to try to hurt somebody. He wasn't going for the head. It's a hit that might have got him two minutes for roughing uh, when playing back here in North America. But any tap of the noggin in the international ice hockey, and you get yourself five and a match. And out goes Dean. But he's been back. He scored a goal. He had an assist yesterday in the quarterfinal against Slovakia. But even for the casual hockey fan, I would imagine people are drawn in and now knowing and realizing that the next household name in ice hockey is 17-year-old Conor Bedard. It's kind of unbelievable to watch. Now, like Bobby McKenzie, I'm kind of running out of superlatives to talk about Bajard, but after yesterday's performance, he's got five records on his own at the World Junior Hockey Championship. So a 4-3 victory in over, overtime against Slovakia, a game that we should never lose, given our performance since the Czechia game. But it took Bajard with his goal and a couple of assists to set us up and send us on our way to the semifinals against the United States of America. That happens tomorrow. So now he surpassed Jordan Eberle's record of 14 career goals. He also topped Eric Lindros' mark of 31 career points. That record stood since 1992. So through he goes with those. But Jared also set the Canadian single tournament mark by uh, beating a record that was once owned by Dale McCourt, set in 1977, Braden Shen in 2011. They were both at the age of 18, but Jared is 17. He also surpassed Yamaro Jagger as the highest-scoring 17-year-old in the World Junior Hockey Championships. Now, we've seen lots of players come and go, sort of flash in the pan, big events at the World Juniors, and maybe don't follow through with the kind of pro career that was on display as a junior hockey player. That's not the case here. This guy is absolutely unbelievable. And a couple of casual hockey fans in my social and family circles are also drawn to the small screen to see what Bedard is going to produce, and we'll see what he produces tomorrow in the... Semi-final at the Worlds. Man, he's something else, that boy. All right, uh, what do I got scribbled down here? Man, my writing is no better in 2023. Oh, an interesting sport note. This date in history, back in 1920, the Boston Red Sox baseball team, their owner Harry Frazee, announced an agreement to sell the slugger Babe Ruth 
to the New York Yankees for $125,000 in cash and a $350,000 loan. And, of course, the result of that was the 84-year curse of the Bambino. It took that long before the Boston Red Sox were able to do away with the curse and win themselves a World Series. But the curse of the Bambino began today in 19... 20. So some encouraging news and really brilliant stuff, to be honest. There was 99 people appointed to the Order of Canada just a number of days ago, including five people from this province. Though they, uh, they include Dr. Douglas Densmore, St. John's, for his leadership as a choral conductor and music educator. I knew Doug Dunsmore over the years, had him on the program, which was out of the fog at the time, uh, many, many times with his choral achievements. And Dr. Connor McGuire. I would have known Dr. McGuire as a child living in the same neighborhood, recognized for his contributions to nuclear medicine, radiology, and improving health care from patients all the way from Alberta, where he spent some of his career and time, and here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And three of the other recipients are members of the musical comedy troupe Buddy, what's his name, and the other fellers. This is the beginning of 40 years performing for Buddy Wassey's name and the other fellas. Of course, many people will look at frontman Kevin Blackmore of Glovertown, Wayne Chalk from Charlottetown, and Ray Johnson of Carbonair. Now, they all met in Glovertown back in 1983. And what's fascinating, I think this story is accurate, so if either of you gentlemen are listening this morning, let's talk about it. So, there was some time left. I believe it was a concert on the heels of a school assembly, and nobody to take the stage. So, Kevin and Wayne and Ray just got out there for the first time performing together and thought, well, there's some synergy or some chemistry here. And lo and behold, 40 years later, here they are, not only working on some new material to bring it back to the stage, but appointed the Order of Newfoundland. Absolutely brilliant stuff. So congratulations to all five and for the three members of Buddy Wass's name and the other fellas. Now, basically known for the comedy and some of the comedic music. But, you know, they'd all had a storied history already. Now, Wayne and Kevin had been playing lots of pubs and clubs and lounges and the like. And Ray Johnson, of the day, was actually the well-established musician. I believe he had five or six albums under his belt, well-known for his Newfoundland music and some other recitations and what have you. And now here they are, all the originals, all the performances later, great ambassadors for the province, and now have been appointed to the Order of Canada. Absolutely tremendous. And if either of you lads are listening this morning and want to chime in and talk about the 40 years and what the Order of Newfoundland means to you, so there have been some 7,600 recipients since 1967. And it was the class of 99 announced by Governor General Mary Simon the other day. But that's pretty cool. Let me add to that. With all the people who have been producing music, whether it be behind the scenes, as a producer, and or on stage, or as a songwriter, is it not high time that we have a Newfoundland and Labrador Music Hall of Fame? Not just for the sake of, but to recognize just how incredible it's been. So, anyway, congratulations to all, and let's get that off the ground. Another quick note in history, and it's, you know, curious, given all the most recent conversation regarding what people call single-use plastics, and some of the baby steps at the federal government, and some areas which have been mocked or eye-rolled at, anyway. It was back today, in this date in history, 1888, an inventor named Marvin Stone received the first U.S. patent for the first artificial drinking straw, which was made of paper. Not plastic. You want to take on the plastic convo? I'm kind into it. And we can do it. All right. This is also a rite of passage when entering into a new year. And I think the conversation is important. It can be twisted around to make it simply about social justice when there's so much involved in the complexities of this annual rite of passage. And that's about how much, the, how much money and how the money is made by the most prominent prestigious CEOs in this country. 
So by 9.43 this morning, Eastern Time, CEOs of the most prestigious 100 companies in the country will have already out-earned the average pay bestowed upon a private sector worker in Canada. So the average pay for the private sector worker is $58,800. And of course, by eight for 9.43, while they're still in their town car, being ferried or limoed off to work, they would have out-earned you. The best-paid executives in Canada earned an average of $14.3 million in 2021. A spare minimum comes from their actual rate of pay, their contractual pay. comes from a bunch of incentives, company profits, performance, revenue, or whatever else chimes in, and, of course, the value of their stock portfolio associated with the performance. Now, again, they're always going to make more than the average worker, but the gap is growing, and it's now at its highest in, his, in recorded history. So they make some 243 times more, 243 times more than the average private sector worker, and they got their money made compared to me and you by the time they digest their breakfast. Now, look, CEOs have the pressures on, answering to board of directors, answering to their shareholders, but the gap is sort of inexplicable, to be honest with you. And it's not just about how much, it's how. Remember, the working bees... The CEOs and their fellow executives, they would never be able to see the compensation packages associated with stock and performance and bonuses and revenue targets if it wasn't for the worker bee. So I get it. The CEOs are always going to make a lavish salary when compared to the rest of us. But the conversation is how, why, and is there anything that could or should be done about it? Anyway, that's an annual first show of the year conversation about the CEOs and the like. All right. Hopefully my voice doesn't sound too, too bad. So one of the stories that dominated the conversation, and I did indeed turn a bit of a blind eye and a deaf ear to the media over the holidays just to try to catch my breath. But we knew it was coming before we even wrapped up 2022 here on this program on the 23rd of December, the Friday, is the travel woes. Look, there's obviously and always going to be issues plaguing travelers, especially over the winter months. So I get it. If your aircraft and crew are stranded in some other airport because of weather, it has the ripple effect throughout the industry. That said, the industry is woefully unprepared for what was the pent-up demand to get back in the skies. Not just for the holiday season, but when all the restrictions were lifted. You know the stories as well as I do. So there's going to be some justifications which I think we can and should understand and quote-unquote accept. But where that industry, and many others like it, fall down in terrible fashion is the lack of communication, the miscommunication, or the feeling that so many travelers felt abandoned. You know, I saw someone, look, if you sent me an email over the holidays, I've tried to get through a lot of them, but one that I saw this morning said, yeah, cry me a river stranded in Mexico, or cry me a river stranded in Cuba. It's a foreign country, you've got plans. And it's one thing to be stranded, but quite another to know that you are not being accommodated at the resort that you booked in for your holiday. You're now without. Without a plan from the airline, without a place to stay akin to what you booked prior to arriving in Havana or in Cancun. So the travel industry is an absolute nightmare. Don't know what's going to become of it. We know that the Airline Passenger Bill of Rights is absolutely toothless, almost worthless document. It has been beneficial to some travelers, but the stories that have piled up over the holidays in particular regarding travel, now, of course, we can blame it on the federal liberals when it comes to passport delays and the like. 
And yes, it's going to be some concerns in the airport authorities on how prepared they were and or the hiring of border security guards and the like. But the airlines, they can't sometimes get to wiggle through all of that. It's fine enough to follow for the political rhetoric that the pileups at Pearson or Vancouver International or the lack of border service agents is the fault of the government when the airport authority and the airlines, they're the ones that are dropping the ball the hardest and the most frequent, as far as I can tell from the outside looking in. But if you want to take it on, we can do it. And talking about travel one more time, maybe two more times. So the federal government says as of January the 5th, travelers arriving in Canada from China, Hong Kong, and Macau are going to have to provide a negative COVID test. Temporary measures that are said to be in place for 30 days. We know all the commentary that came from different sides of the political spectrum about whether it was racist or not and all the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs of the half-nonsensical conversation regarding these travel restrictions. But I think when we are realistic and we look back at how it worked and how it impacted public safety, this is as much performative as, as anything else. I mean, it just is. Remember when the travel mandates, which went away on October 1st regarding vaccination rates, I was one of the fully vaccinated, the two shots in the primary series. I had the one murder and a booster. I went on holidays with my wife. I wasn't obligated to do any isolation upon return. Two days after I landed at St. John's International Airport, bang, positive. So some of these things simply are not working. There's a couple of infectious disease specialists are out there talking about if you really want to know where it is, how severe it is, testing, and this always sounded funny to me, but testing wastewater at airports and the countries or airports of origin of some of these flights gives you a much better idea than taking these particular tests, whether it be the PCR test or an antigen test. And the rules apply regardless of your nationality or vaccination status, but here we go again on that front. You want to take it on? We can do it. And talk about the seasonal issue. Uh, again, I have no idea what life was like in your world, in amongst your family or your social circles, but We were warned that respiratory illnesses were going to be rampant, and boy, from where I sit and stand, they sure were. I don't know if you got anything, but in my family, we're impacted by COVID. My buddies had, a couple of my buddies had the flu, and I got what has been deemed the sore throat variety. And it's awful, or it was awful. It's not so bad today, but, you know, on that front, so many of the fixes that are right there in front of us regarding dealing with some of the backlog in the healthcare system on things like this. Now, the province of Ontario says that pharmacists can deal with and uh, address and assign treatment to 13 common ailments, whether it be pink eye, uh, UTIs, urinary tract infections, hemorrhoids, and others. But just imagine, in this province, with so much that can be done by the pharmacists and other healthcare professionals, and they're not allowed, we are now seeing and paying someone like PhoneMed and 811 82 bucks to assess my call so that they can't see over the telephone, as opposed to zero additional cost to go into a pharmacist, put your herpes or your cold sore on display, have an assessment done, be given the treatment, and walk out without costing anybody in the world an additional cent. But no, no, we either got to go to Emerge, or we got to scramble to find a family doctor, or we got to call 811 and some of the solutions that are out there. And I know oversimplifying is not helpful, but If it can be done elsewhere inside our own country, it can be done here. I mean, enough is enough. I saw in some of the year in review headlines throughout the media is that the province would focus on health care. And I don't dispute the fact that the province has tried to focus on health care. 
But dangling incentives to move registered nurses from casual to full-time or to bring uh, expats back and or family doctors are set up in rural locations and all the rest of it. You might get sick of hearing it, and I sure get sick of saying it. Is that until and unless we 100% maximize the scope of practice for the current practicing healthcare professionals, we are taking one step forward and two steps back. So, yeah, why don't I phone 811, give me 82 bucks, versus go see Carol O'Keefe at the pharmacy on Belle Island and walk out with the treatment required. What do you think? You want to talk about it? We can do it. How are we doing on the telephone, Dave? I had a lot I wanted to get through, but maybe I shouldn't go too hard here. Kick off the season. Central Health, by October of last year, had spent $4.2 million on travel nurses. Again, sometimes headline grabbing, because $4.2 million on top of the other expenses inside payroll is one thing, but... Like, what actually leads to that? And I've read stories from newspapers across the country talking about exactly that, travel nurses and what the costs have been for various provinces and or regional health authorities. So we're not alone. But again, where are the solutions to any of these things? I don't know. You know, it can't be as simple as the years down the road creation of more and more nursing seats. We've seen monies that have been put in front of casual nurses who are, by and large, not taking it to move on to permanent full-time status. And we know it's not always about the money. It could be about your quote-unquote work-life balance and up and down the line, but you want to take it on. We can do it. And I'm not necessarily a superstitious man. I do put on my underwear before my socks. I do put on my left boot before the right. I put on my left skate before the right. But the four regional health authorities, via legislation, are going to be amalgamated into one on the 1st of April. With all of the potential concerns or hurdles, I think I would have avoided April 1st at all costs. So the bill that's going to allow that to happen is Bill, I had it in front of me a little while ago, uh, Bill 20. So the questions will be how these regional councils will work and how voices are heard. And yes, where are the jobs going to be? They can't all be in town, so that's out there. And you want to take it on. We can do it very quickly. The RCP report that in prayer charges are down, albeit slightly, in the province. So in 2021, there were impaired driving charges laid against 398 people. From January the 1st to the 14th of December of 22, the number was 300. 235 of those were impaired by alcohol, 53 by drugs, and 12 a combo of both, the tokes and the drinks. 42 were using an off-road vehicle, so the numbers are down, albeit very slightly. But in the world of the not just getting caught behind the wheel, but what is absolutely a crisis in this country, numbers are out regarding opioid overdoses and deaths. Over 3,500 people died of overdose in the first half of 2022. A lot of it comes back to fentanyl, but some of the toxic mixes of these various synthetic drugs is crushing Canada. Absolutely crushing it. And people think that you are enabling and you're putting needles in people's hands and lines up their nose when you talk about self, uh, safe injection sites and safe supply. Basically what that says, though, is that you're fine with these numbers. 20 people a day are dying from an opioid overdose in Canada. That's more than double the number of people dying from overdoses in the first year of the pandemic. So it's only getting worse. I'm just trying to get your conversations going here. All right, there's much more I wanted to get to, but let's get to your calls. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And please, if you sent an email since Friday the 23rd of December and you really want or need me to see it, please resend it because I 
arrived here at work this morning and there's a lot. So please resend if you are so inclined. How us take a break. When we come back, hopefully you're in the queue to talk about a topic of your choosing. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go. Line number four. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Happy New Year to you, sir. Happy New Year to you as well, Charlie. Thank you. We have a, a nice little snowfall uh, down, just just enough probably to, to get skiing. Not here. <laughs> no. That's another thing I didn't mention off the uh, top this morning is looking around the rest of North America and many parts of the world to know that we were barbecuing on Christmas Day here and people were shoveling out and they were battening down the hatches and yet not a flake of snow to be seen as green as could be and very tempered out there in uh, a light jacket barbecuing is just madness. It's <laughs> amazing. Uh, did you see the Connor Bedard uh, goal uh, yesterday? The overtime goal, yeah. Oh, my God. He's, he's another Connor, Connor McDavid for sure. I suppose he is. Um, and now, you know, it takes a bit of time to see how it all shakes out in the future. And we have seen guys who have had incredible world juniors that didn't really make a big splash as uh, an NHLer. But McDavid, of course, for him, it's the speed and the release. For Bedard, it's everything. I'm amazed. I'm absolutely amazed by him. And just when you do the 17-year-old comparison, uh, McDavid looked great as a 17-year-old. Uh, Bedard as a 17-year-old is head and shoulders the best player in the tournament. Amazing. I'm only sorry that the, that the Leafs are not going to finish last this year. They have a, have a good crack at them, right? Me too. Well, let's uh, get some context too because there's some guys who are big names in the world of hockey. Logan Cooley, United States, who they face in the uh, semifinals tomorrow. He's got 11 points on eight goals, or pardon me, five goals and six assists. Bedard has, in both five games played, eight goals, 13 assists, 21 points, 10 uh, uh, beyond his rival, closest rival. Anyway... Uh I could talk with you all day, but I, I want to get to, to cruise ships. Before uh, uh, Christmas, I was on, and I didn't go into detail on it. <coughs> Excuse me. I mentioned uh, they, that cruise ships are, are, uh, have a reputation as being a dirty industry. I got some uh, uh, feedback or kickback or whatever you want to ta- call it from uh, a couple of people, especially uh, uh, Mr. O'Keefe. I'll ignore his uh, condescending mocking tone, and I'll just say, if anybody really wants to know the truth about that industry, just Google. any any uh, Just put in anything about cruise ships and how environmentally clean they are, and you'll find that nine out of ten articles uh, are very, very negative. I got interested in the topic when I was reading The Outlaw Ocean by a fellow Ian Ur- Urbina. He traveled on ships throughout the world monitoring uh, things that were happening on the high seas, especially with the fishing industry, right? little story began that caught my attention. Uh, there was a newly hired engineer uh, on the American cruise ship, the Caribbean Princess, a Scott, Scottish fellow by the name of Chris Keyes. And uh, he became aware that there was something wrong in the engine room. Something was going on. He thought he had a, his dream job, right? Just mention a couple of things as he went down to look. Venturing into an unfamiliar section where he did not typically work, Key saw something that swiftly soured his exuberance over his new job. An illegal device known in the industry as a magic as a magic pipe. He knew exactly what he was looking for because he had studied this. Several feet long, the pipe stretched from a nozzle on a carbon filter pump to a water tank. Its magic trick? 
making the ship's used oil and other nasty liquids disappear. Rather than storing the highly toxic effluent and unloading it at port, as the ship was legally required to do, the pipe was secretly flushing the water into the ocean, saving the ship's owner, Carnival Corporation, millions of dollars in disposal fees and port delays. He said, this is heffing ridiculous, and he took pictures and so on. I think, I think he was awarded a million dollars for being a whistleblower. But apparently this was happening on four other ships as well, right? I don't imagine that type of behavior in the shipping industry is unique to the cruise ship industry. One place where I know they get a little bit of a black eye that may not be, uh, may not be fair is regarding viruses. Norovirus is the one that comes to mind because we see all those stories where so many people have been infected when a shipboard breakout has happened, but, and I try to remember these numbers accurately, the risk of getting norov- norovirus in the United States and many parts of Canada is 1 in 15. A cruise passenger has a risk of 1 in 5,500, but every time that we see it, then we directly associate it with the close quarters and sharing of buffets on a cruise ship versus what is the risk where you live, uh, terra firma, versus being on a cruise ship. So it, it's not for me personally. I have no real interest in being on a cruise. I've never been on one, but many people swear by them. They're the best holidays I've ever taken, but behavior at the high seas, I don't think it's unique to cruise ships when we talk about bilge and, oh, and discharge. Oh, that was the point in his book. Uh, most of the fisheries, the world's larger fisheries, have been decimated, and a lot of it is by uh, what happens on the high seas, people not following uh, regulations and so on, overfishing, right? But this industry uh, this industry is kind of special. Uh, just, just a couple of more things uh, on facts, uh, if anybody would like to, uh, again, Google them. One of them, the princess, I'm not sure it was Carnival or the princess, won fined $40 million for for illegally dumping, uh, I forget the area now, I think it was off England. Another one in the Caribbean, 20, um, off the Bahamas, $20 million. These are only events that take place that are caught uh, near these places. One was fined uh, $20, $20 million, and there was on probation for five years. And on probation, it it uh, did much the same thing and, and was brought to court again. And I would suggest this is only the tip of the iceberg. Here's, here's another one. A single cruise ship produces uh, from smokestacks and exhaust emissions equivalent to 12,000 autos every day. The average cruise ship produces seven tons of garbage and solid waste every day, right? The standards, they're not held to the same important environmental standards that cities and industries that produce this. It's a floating city out there. It's six or seven thousand people, uh, Patty, jammed into that. Uh, anyway, I won't go into any more. There's a whole host of these things. I'm not saying that uh, they're, they're unique. I'm saying that they are uh, a, a real culprit for uh, trying to save money. It, it, just, just a comment he made on the cruise ship industry. Cruise ship industry is one of the more bizarre creations of modern society, a floating jumble of contradictions. It peddles freedom and exploration, but the actual experience is designed to be predictable, choreographed, and familiar, like a Vegas hotel with an amusement park. It advertises the great outdoors, but mostly keeps people distracted with its ice cream sundae bars, water slides, and go-kart tracks, 
uh, uh, anyway, he goes, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But I would, I would say to people that uh, travel on those, and by the way, when you travel on them, you have to go by plane to get there. If you're interested in, in, in the planet and your carbon footprint, this is probably one of the worst things you could do if you're going to spend. Yeah. I think it's interesting you brought Vegas into it because, look, there's going to be downsides to any type of travel. I guess when you extrapolate or break down uh, emissions versus people and if they were all taking their own pleasure craft and or flying and or driving or whatever the case may be, it paints a little different picture. But Vegas, I'm telling you what, uh, you can talk about emissions all you like and fair enough. It's how we use water is what's starting to drive me a little bit more nuts than almost anything else regarding the planet and how we use our resources. Water's going to be more valuable than oil if it isn't already. I mean, if you fly into any desert communities, whether it be in Palm Springs or into Las Vegas or what have you, and you see the stark contrast between the desert and the very lush properties, whether it be resorts or golf courses or what have you, and then if you look up how much water it takes to produce a single almond and then what it looks like for the reservoir that is Lake Mead and other places where we've seen water being decimated and yet on the very next county over there's a collection of golf courses that couldn't be more green regardless of where they were in this world they could be in the rainforest or so green so there's there's lots to be considered there but the, the way we use water now I think is absolute madness you know we've got companies that have got rights to water that all they do is they take the water that should be belong to me and you and the residents uh, surrounding area they take it for nothing they put it in a plastic bottle and sell it to me <laughs> for your own amusement folks either during this break or after the show this morning just have a google with how much water is r- required to grow an almond a single yeah. almond yeah. you will be flabbergasted yeah it's, i've seen that yeah charlie i've got to get to the break uh, for the this uh, morning I but make, i pardon make one more point very quickly on, on, uh, I heard David Suzuki is, 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 is retiring. That's, that's a sad day. He was the one guy that understood that without a sound environment and living in harmony with nature, uh, that this is not uh, as opposed to a good economy. It's necessary for a good economy. He talked about that uh, we're all... It's, it's, it's our support life, our... our Without a strong environment, was his message, you cannot have a strong economy, and eventually you'll have no economy. But anyway, uh, for people who mock it, that come on your show on a regular basis, some of them still mock climate change, I notice. Well, Uh, I can only say that climate change is real. Man's contribution is, in my personal opinion, based on everything I've read and understood, is indisputable. Uh, I have a little bit of a problem with Suzuki and some of the hypocrisy that has also know been peppered through his life with his own uh, footprint and what have you but i understand the point people make for some on the environmental side pardon me he's the i hate to say messiah or whatever but he is the go-to voice and the person that they put up on that poster but he also has certainly not kept his carbon footprint to where someone who speaks as loudly and as forcefully as he does would have in a so-called perfect world even though there's no such thing would be said about al gore but if you look at the yeah. message that those two people have got out to, to, to probably billions of people, I would say let's not expect perfection. Let's give them credit for uh, all they've contributed and the message, right? I would expect better. How about that? Not perfect, yeah. just better. Okay. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks, Patty. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. On that front, you know, just to add to the conversation, maybe you can pick up on it. Sometime this year, we're expecting a piece of federal legislation from Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson 
two major tenets of which will be what they call a just transition, which is really clumsy verbiage these days because whatever just transition is to you, it would be different from someone across the aisle in your office, would be different maybe than your partner at home, would be different than some of your buddies because it all depends on what you do for a living or where you stand, depends on where you sit, right? So they're talking about just transition to move away from jobs in fossil fuel to alternatives. You want to talk about it? Great. Importantly, one of the other pieces of that legislation is going to be a focus on a $5 billion project that includes this province. And it's called what has currently been simply just a liberal branding machine, which is the Atlantic Loop. That's going to be part of that legislation. You want to take it on? Do it after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Now, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three, Murray, you're on the air. Hi, Murray, on three, you're on the air. Oh, happy new year, Patty. Happy new year to you as well, thank I you. I trust you had a well-deserved break. Oh, I had a break, break, and it was extremely quiet and laid back, just what the doctor ordered. I called you Friday a couple of weeks ago about my house got washed away, the, the fill all washed out of it. Oh, yes. And Christmas Eve, the same thing happened, Patty. Every oh, bit no. of work I had done down below in my house, all gone again. Washed right in through, the same thing. I got the same mist while I was doing Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, done with a, a shovel, a push broom, and a hose. Hose in the dirt out of my basement. Yeah, and so, I mean, the question I guess you and others will be asking themselves is if I'm in a place where I'm going to put my shoulder to the wheel, apply the elbow grease, get some work done to try to clean it up, and while I'm in the middle of that, lo and behold, it happens to me again. So what are you going to do? Well, well, I I don't understand why I can't get the land put back in my house, where around my house, that Fiona washed away. I don't know. 30 years, this house been there 30 years. I never had a problem there. Yeah, I don't know. Like uh, I mentioned when we spoke last, there was this lady who lived, uh, had a place, summer place right outside of Porto Basque. Place got flattened, the land got destroyed, and she's wondering, you know, with all the millions that came in outside the provincial government, what is that being earmarked for? What are we using it for? That I think that's a fair question. That's not pointing fingers of accusation at one organization or nothing. Is what are we actually using the money for? I wonder, do the the people that donated this money know what's going on with their hard-earned money? They donated it to help. Only certain people can uh, acquire some of this money. Yep. I don't understand why. I don't know. There's a place down the road here, Patty, just about 200 feet down from my house, on, on the main road through the community. Any morning at all, I'm going to wake up and expect to see a car hop overboard, probably somebody drowned. Straight down, but six feet from the... And it's washed away almost into the asphalt now. And every day the tide comes in, a bit more goes. There's no guardrail, there's no marker, there's nothing. People walk on the shoulder of the road in the dark and end up overboard. Boys are boys. I don't know what's going on. They spent millions down in Rose Blanche on, on Armourstone, places that it didn't need to be. I wonder if that got to do with the, the, the company that's making this Armourstone and delivering it. They got their own stone, they got their own trucks. And the farther they can deliver a truckload of rocks, I guess the more money they'll get for it. Yeah, and I mean, it went I, to I, the I, end I, of each road in Rose Blanche. And, and so I don't know what's going on. Now there was a fellow called. He was supposed to come Monday. He called last week. 
He said, I'll be there Monday. He called just a couple of hours ago. He said, I'll be there Wednesday or Thursday. And the wife took a video when it was on the patio, what's left of it, and took a video this time to see running in and running up between my house and the next building alongside. Going up. And now I'm not trying to get out of my house, Patty. I'm trying to save my home. Like, I don't want to leave this place. But something's going to have to be done. And plus, the water that comes in is just like raw sewage. That's the smell. I figured it, I got now figured out, just up the shore here, about 300 yards, the town sewer, the main sewer runs overboard there in the bay. And I figure it settles on the bottom, and when this sea aves up and kicks it, stirs everything up, and the water rushes in, and, and that's what's in my basement. I, it's, it's ridiculous. So you want to save your home. Is there going to be a breaking point where wanting to is going to be outweighed by needing to move elsewhere? If no one's going to put the land back the way it was and offer you that natural protection, at some point you're just going to be in a revolving uh, turnstile of cleaning up and cleaning up and cleaning up and flooded out and cleaning up and flooded out and cleaning up. But pretty soon, see, Patty, the land is all gone. And the ice, this winter, I expect my ice to be smashed up by ice. Because every 10 or 12 times a year, this bay freezes and breaks out. And right now, this is where the ice is going to come. Right. There's sticks out there on my beach, I call it now. I can't lift. I can't drag them. There's, a, there's one there, I say, about 10 feet, 8 by 8 tarry wood, right on the patio. And there's two more gone in under. That sticks that's just washed in. So when the ice comes, I know what's going to happen. Well, hopefully not. Uh, we still have to do the follow-up. Now, I said uh, last time we spoke that I will chase the cover of the organizations that put money into relief efforts in Port of Basque. We know what the governments have done and how much is there for, you know, 200 bucks a square foot to replace a home or what have you. Not necessarily about how we're going to see those other millions of dollars spent out there because at this point in time, we really don't know how it's being spent. But I'd be curious to know. Uh, Murray, I'll put it back in the follow-up pile. I appreciate the time this morning. I'm sorry it happened to you again on Christmas Eve. Okay, thank you, Patty. Appreciate taking my call. Anytime. All the best. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number seven. Gus, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Yes, uh, I just got back from, well, three weeks ago from St. John's Health Science uh, Complex down there where I had uh, bypass surgery, and I wanted to throw a bouquet to all the cardiac uh, doctors down there, they have a great team. They're terribly overworked, and uh, but they're they're keeping going. They're, I happen to be down there five weeks, which is pretty long to be in the hospital, I guess. But with so much work on their hands, that you know, obviously I had to wait my turn, and they take the most serious first. But I want to throw out a bouquet to all the cardiologists, all the nurses, right from uh, Robin, the the, the uh, triage nurse, right on up to uh, everyone that uh, worked with me uh, to uh, get me back on my feet. They're uh, they're angels, all of them, and even we're seniors, so we don't have a lot of money and. Uh, I think it's human resources, work with my wife, because she was down there for 
five weeks, same as I was, and and uh, living in Oslo. Not Oslo, very cheap. It was only thirty-eight dollars a night. But when you're down there for five weeks, that can add up, you know, to quite some money. So she worked with us, and she said, "You just sign the form. I'll fill out everything that's necessary." And she, you know, sent it to the government because there's a subsidy or grant or something that you can get will take care of some of your expenses that's right there's a travel subsidy yeah and a god lover she never stopped and uh, we had a few snags because my bank account wasn't in st john's and uh, but she worked with us until we did get a uh, a uh, letter saying that you know with our bank account for the money to be put into there so like i say all them i like to show a large very large bouquet uh it, it our old system in newfoundland might be broken but i guarantee you one thing uh it's alive and well in in Eastern Elk. Uh, it's like I, I I couldn't say enough about. That. Well, I'm glad that you had that type of experience. Uh, quickly, Gus, were you waiting long to get in? Uh, well, uh, the, the id cardiologist was mad at us. I was I was uh, going through uh, heart attack, and uh, I uh, my wife just said, come on, we're going to St. John's. So we drove to St. John's. He was quite mad about that. He said, you could have killed yourself. And my wife said, well, either kill him coming down there or let him wait at home and die. So, uh, yeah, five weeks, around five weeks, maybe a little better from the time I went in there. When I uh, went into uh, Emerge, they said, yeah, your heart is under stress and you're not going over. You're You're going to wait until... You get the dye test, and the dye test showed two very large blockages, so they opted to do the uh, the bypass. And uh, a little better than five weeks, I guess. So you know that's quite the stay. But uh, they try to the cardiologists try to do four a day, four four bypasses a day, because there's a great team. I know there's probably five or six cardiologists on that team, and. Uh, but with staff shortages and equipment breakdowns, obviously that's normal. Uh, most days they can only get two done, but they work tirelessly, sir, to get everybody off that list. They uh, they were going to stop on the 23rd for Christmas, and uh, the last I heard, no, they're going to work right on for Christmas. Because, uh, uh, Patty, they're coming from all over Newfoundland and Labrador. Every community is, is represented pretty much down at Eastern Elt. And nobody, of course, if you're in stress of any kind, you're not turned away. So uh, sometimes you have to wait overnight down in the merge until they, uh, they get a bid for you. But you're not getting out of that hospital until you're taken care of. And I, I, I can't I can't say enough about that. I'm glad it worked out. I wish you nothing but the best in your recovery, Gus. Thanks for this this morning. Thank you very much, Patty. Thank you for my call. Pleasure. Take good care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, Bill wants to respond to Charlie's thoughts on cruise ships. Don't go away. Uh, Welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's go to five. Bill, you're on the air. Me? That's you, Bill. If if you're Bill on line number five, that's you. How you doing? Doing okay. How you doing? 
Not bad at all. I'm just uh, looking at the... Uh, do, do you follow the site, Perry, uh, Cape Shore Memes? Memes? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was looking at the snaps of the week. <laughs> let me let me click myself. <laughs> no problem. Uh, yeah, no, I was just listening to Charlie. Uh, I don't like Charlie. Okay. It, 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 the self-righteousness comes right off him, but uh, he's he's not wrong about the cruise ship industry. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll, actually, I'll start off. I'll tell you a funny story from uh, pre two thousand and one. Of course, uh, the the she was called the um, the regal empress or the regal princess or something, uh, whatever it was. Uh, I, I was a twenty year old something boy. And uh, me and the girlfriend were downtown uh, that night, and uh, we happened to find a key on the ground to a room aboard the cruise ship. And I checked the bank accounts, and there was three or four hundred dollars there. And we knew she was going to be dock- docking in Bonavista the next night, so we went down. We got your local security, easy peasy, because uh, it was pre two thousand and one, of course. And, uh, and then when I got up, uh, then we tr- we tried to board the ship, and uh, uh, apparently everybody had black light stamps. And I, I just looked at the, the security guard. I was like, oh, man, I said, we've been everywhere. Uh, I guess it washed off, and I showed them the key. And anyway, they let us off. They let us on. And the ship started and actually got out in the middle of St. John's Harbor before they caught us. And then they had to bring us back. <laughs> what are the charges for being a stowaway these days? Just well, those days, these days I don't know. Right. Those days, uh, we got off real good. It was a, 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 and I won't name the guy. I actually know his name, but I won't. Okay. Uh, St. John's Port Authority guy. They, they handcuffed us and had to put, bring the boat back in. And uh, and, then, and there was a huge crowd on the on the on the waterfront, uh, which doesn't happen anymore, of course. And so they come over, and the, the guy from the St. John's Port Authority came up and took us, and we walked down the crowd. And he looked at me, and said, "Listen," he said, "How old are you?" And I was nineteen is the answer. I was nineteen. I said uh, nineteen. He said, "I might know what it's like to be a stupid nineteen-year-old too." Now get this. Sh- I won't use the word. Get out of here and don't let me see you again. And we went away. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to even remember how we all handled ourselves and what was going on prior to 2001, or I guess September 11th of 2001. That's what I'll start with, yeah. Quick question about uh, self-righteousness. So, you know, I sometimes, well, early on in my stay in this chair, I used to think about it because, you know, if you don't put out some opinions, because if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. But then you kind of think about how it comes across when we talk about one issue or another. So with Charlie, he's, of course, passionate about, for instance, on the climate change front with curbing emissions. Do you find or hear the same type of self-righteousness if someone comes down with the exact opposite passionate opinion about maximizing natural resources and, and pumping every drop of oil out there? Does it, feel, does it sound the same way to you? I'm just curious. This is not about picking yes, winners and yes. losers because I don't care. I'm just wondering yes. how you hear it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, and it's exactly like, like the, the the climate change thing with Charlie, and that's that's why I said I started off. I said I don't like Charlie because I, I, I as a scene because I don't know the man, 
but it, it, it's it's like th- this this earth has been here forever, and you know what? When when it's done with us, all it's going to do is shit us. But isn't that something that maybe would be wise to avoid? What difference does it make? Well, I think, like, I mean, uh, uh, there's a bunch of different issues that have become very difficult conversations to have because there is no so-called middle ground or even attempts at finding common ground. But the facts of the matter are, we can talk about the planet's been here for however many millennia, and it's true. But if we factor in what it looked like and the temper and the, pardon me, the climate and how it's changed over whatever stanza of time you'd like, whether it be uh, Paleozoic eras or others, the emission count since the Industrial Age is unlike nothing the world has ever seen, no matter what kind of uh, epoch of time you want to include. And then if you uh, factor in even something that's fundamental, as people living on an island here, is factor in sea temperature, it's happening quicker than ever before, the consequences of which, I think, is the conversation. We can talk about whether it be asteroids or man-made emissions or whatever people wanted to focus in on, or the sun or other things that people put at me all the time is the fact of the matter is it's happening don't take it from me take it from the oil and gas companies uh, they've uh, said I the agree. quiet parts out, out loud they are taking responsibility not now not openly and honestly and financially but they're taking responsibility for what they knew and when they knew it uh, uh, and that's the insurance uh, uh, companies Patty, Patty? Sure. Uh, sorry I don't, I don't mean to cut you off I, I do mean to cut you off but uh, not, not rudely go ahead uh, uh, it, 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 none of those big corporate uh, uh, conglomerates or government uh, mafias or whatever, they don't tell us the truth at all. Not even a little bit. Uh, and uh, so we, we, we can go on. Yes. Uh, but I, now, I mean, I, I get that point. But, Bill, just a second here. Some of those oh. references to oil and gas companies, for instance, upon subpoena in front of the American Senate committees, they, provo- they provided documentation that they did not want to, but they were subject to criminal charges because. So they told us what they knew themselves decades ago. And not because they wanted to, but because they were forced to. And so, yeah. you know, sometimes right. well, we can force people to tell the truth because not too many CEOs or former research scientists work for picking oil and get pick BP, they don't want to spend the rest of their life in prison to cover up from some jerk down the road or down the uh, down the hall. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I, I, we 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 can fundamentally agree there a, a thousand percent. But okay. the, the the way the way the system was working now, it's it's not for you and I. No, it's not. And it's, it's, you know, rules limit freedoms and can and are used in our system called democracy most often for not for protection of honest, fair folks to live from persecution or harm to any group or individual, but instead are argued, interpreted, and hardly ever with black and white. Yeah, now, is that a result of Westminster parliamentary structure, or is that the direct result of what I think people rightfully refer to as late capitalism? Capitalism can work. It's not ideal, but the structure of government is kind of a different thing than the way the economy is structured. No, no, you, you just talked over my head. There's something I got to look into because that, that was I, I like that, but I, I, it's not something I I heard because uh, uh, I just haven't. So I, I don't I don't have a, I don't have a rebuttal for that at all. No, and not uh, not even looking for one. And our last question, and I'll let you wrap it up because I'm a bit late for the news. Is I I know that part and parcel with doing what I do for a living is people will attach what they think of me to what I say. And so be it. It's unavoidable. And I get it. And it doesn't bother me at all. But 
what I try to do, and I don't know if I'm very effective at it, is I back out the messenger and I try to deal with the message. I no longer have any interest in disliking or hating or loathing or mocking uh, people who I don't know at all, at all. All I see is what they read or write or post or say on this program. So for me, I have a better chance of having a discussion and or an argument if we argue about the message. Because when we get caught up in the messenger, we sort of lose sight of what we're trying to achieve with the conversation or debate. We just end up in throwing mud at each other. And what, what happens at the end of that? Both of us go back to our corner, get a bucket and a mop, come back and clean up the mud, and we got no further ahead. What do you think? I take, I take great amount of pride in what you just said because the way you explained it to me it was, was, was uh, I take it as a respectful treatment, and uh, God love you. Yeah, well, hopefully somebody does because it's been a long bunch of years. <laughs> Bill, it's good to have you on the show. I appreciate the time. You're always welcome. Cheers. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. You're up after this. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Tom, you're on the air. Good morning and Happy New Year, Patty. Good morning and Happy New Year to you as well. I, w- I want to pile on to the cruise industry just a little bit. Um, they, the ships burn generally the dirtiest oil you can imagine. And uh, one day on a cruise ship burns around uh, 187,000 liters of fuel, resulting in around 1.5 million pounds of CO2. So it's you know it's, it's if you were to get in an airplane and fly the same distance on and stay in hotels along the way, you'd burn half as much. You'd create half as much uh, greenhouse gases than if you uh, than if you went by cruise ship. That being said, it's you know I, I agree it's one of the most incredible ways to experience the world. But the other thing I you know I've unfortunately or depending you look at it, I've done it done it myself and and uh, not to say I regret it, but. But it's you know sometimes you got to experience things to realize it. But the amount of food waste is is incredible. The overeating, the overdrinking, and there was a study done on air quality, and the pollution on board a cruise ship is 20 times higher than on a main road with a lot of pollution. And you, and and I've experienced that, and I I can relate to that. So all these things are things to keep in mind before clicking book. Well, I suppose. So, but like the shipping industry itself, whether it be all the way from the marine Atlantics to the war of the world to the big massive shipping container ships, whether it be the cruise industry, they're all working towards some sort of sustainable future, whether it be with uh, methanol, which I know that there's a cruise ship, uh, I think, based in Norway that's trying to launch the first ever methanol-fueled cruise ship. So isn't this the inevitable move that all are making, whether it be uh, individuals moving to an electric car or hybrid or Marine Atlantic moving to a fuel which I'm actually paying additional monies for because they're making that transition and or the shipping container ships and or the cruise industry? Aren't these moves afoot? Because not only is it good for, uh, I'll give the the air quotes, the planet, it's good for their business. It's good for their opportunity to uh, get investment dollars because that's becoming one of the boxes being checked by investment bankers is those type of sustainable models. And the look that you're moving towards something that is more sustainable, more attractive potentially to travelers, more attractive potentially to investment uh, investors. So aren't these things just kind of happening whether or not we like it? Well, there's a whole bunch of things there. So if you take OceanX as an example, which travels between two Canadian ports and has a fairly innovative leader, um, they're, for example, embracing the graphene 
paint technology on uh, one of their ships to see if it can decrease friction and and therefore by default decrease how much fuel they burn. Um, you know, there's, you know, it, it's the challenge you look is the best way to predict the future is look at the past. And although there's been a lot of virtue signaling and a lot of you know, people claiming to care. We're, you know, take Newfoundland because, again, let's use that as a pretty good example. We've 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 increased our emissions. So has Canada. You know, in the last few years. So it all, you know, businesses are profit maximizing entities, and and especially a large public corporation. So at the end of the day, they're bound to maximize profitability and returns to their shareholders. That's their job. They can do nothing else other than that. But at some and, point, maximizing that return is also going to come with some sort of more sustainable path. If you look at the world of investment banking, whether it be oil companies and access to capital, I'll use them for an example. They will tell you, unless they have plans, a la Statoil or Equinor, about mitigation measures for offshore production, they would have a harder time coming up with the money than if they did not have that as part of their plan. And that's happening across the board. We don't have to talk about the most elite boardrooms of the world in the fossil fuel industry. That's becoming one of the checkboxes. It just is. Even in the small businesses that I'm involved in, that's actually part of the application process. And I'm like, wow, when did this happen? No, you know, 100%. However, if we're going to have meaningful change, so in other words, reducing uh, our carbon footprint by 50% by 2035 or be net zero by 2050, like you're talking about having no cruise ships, like like you can't, it, it's just, it, you know, it's really great to say, yeah, we're making small improvements when in reality we aren't, we're actually as a whole becoming more wasteful and, and online shopping and more waste and blah, blah. The challenge is that the change that's necessary is massive. And, you know, I, I could just use smoking as an example. So let's just say that, you know, you've got government policy, you have laws, you have, you know, incredible taxation, you have the fact that it kills people. And uh, people still do it. And, you know, funny thing is a lot of statistics, not to go down too much of a rabbit hole, a lot of statistics in Newfoundland show reduction in smoking. Every smoker I talk to right now smokes uh, illegal cigarettes. My mother might be an exception who smokes like a pack maybe two weeks. Um, maybe she buys her Benson Hedges still at the convenience store. You just do a random poll of people out there, like maybe not your friends, but I talk to tradespeople, I talk to so many different people, and you're all buying uh, illegally imported cigarettes. So, I mean, just as an example, and not to be cynical, because I'm hopeful. I mean, I'm not on this radio because I just want to be negative. Um, uh, I just think that it requires, I mean, technology has increased so much. If we just think back, go back 100 years, go back 200 years, go back 50 years, look at how much technology has improved. And then look in the mirror and think how less wise we are. How less. You got to factor population in there. 80% of Canada's electricity comes from uh, renewables or not emitting nuclear power. So while we can say, well, you know, it's not happening fast enough, the, part of the issue is here, like look at British Columbia. They were second in the game with the price on pollution after the province of Quebec, which people kind of forget in that conversation. People say, oh, it doesn't work because their emissions haven't gone down. But they haven't gone anywhere near up as steeply as any other province that did not have a price on pollution because their population grew. So you cannot have both at the exact same time with the current approach to whether it be pricing and or technology. So at some point, even when we talk on the national stage, if we don't factor in population, because more people living in the country now than ever in our history, then 
there's never going to be a mechanism that keeps up with immigration, for instance. So that's where the politicians of the day have really betrayed us with the conversation. Now it's simply about uh, politics, not about policy. Policy doesn't matter anymore. It's all about who you can confuse enough to think that the other guy's wrong or that you should be afraid of them. So if we don't factor in population to whether it be provincial measures and or national measures, because tell me another country with... A modern first world country, developing nation that has a natural resources base that uses 80% of its electricity for renewables or uh, not emitting nuclear power at the tune of 80%. We're working at quite a good clip, but what we're doing has just been based on politics, not policy. That's why it's failing us. Well, I mean, one of our big issues in Canada is transportation. You know, people drive around in vehicles. It's, uh, number, to- it's number two behind the fossil fuel industry. Correct. And and obviously, you know, you go to a lot of European countries or Asian countries and a lot of people go around on public transportation, which in Canada would be powered mostly by, again, renewables. And, you know, it's but it's just it's not even the vehicles. It's the size of the vehicles. It's it's uh, how we drive them. It's, you know, this, and, and a increasing population actually helps us for our carbon intensity because, you know, you have a higher population. Generally, you, you get higher population density and, and that usually results in uh, more more. Uh, public transportation and, uh, you know, people living in smaller spaces, taking up less space, having to drive less. But I just want to jump over to, you know, um, the main reason I called, which which is a reflection on 2022 and where we're going. And uh, specifically, you know, when we talk about how hard medical people are working, it's juxtaposed against people who obviously aren't working as hard. Everything is relative. And if you go back not that long in Newfoundland and Labrador, People worked way harder. I mean, I just keep reflecting on the gentleman who would get up before dark, before you know, when it was still dark in the morning, and then row out to the headlands, catch fish, come back, salt it. Meanwhile, their their partners, wives, children were all working, and, and it never really stopped. You know, and, you know, it was just, you know, they took Sunday off, hopefully, uh, and that was a sacred day. And then the other six days, they survived. And then, and then we're here. We are now, and and it's it's like we expect everything to continue on just because and and i feel like it's psychological entitlement and and that would be by definition an inflated and pervasive sense of deservingness self-importance and exaggerated expectations to receive special goods and treatment without reciprocating so i think the last word is the most important reciprocating would be without doing at least the same amount in return on a societal level on a community level and and I think that goes from top to bottom. I think we're all guilty of it, myself included. And I think we need to reflect on that and how we can kind of embrace the older ways of thinking where you don't take without receiving, without giving, sorry. And and when I you know think about, and the easy ones to pick on will be people on income support or chronic EI users. That's real easy, but, that, but, it, but it's way, way deeper than that. It's business owners who charge government more than their regular customers. Um, it's young people who are unambitious, seniors who are capable of working or contributing to society, but but for one reason or not aren't. It's 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 people on long-term disability. It's healthcare workers who are not reliable and they're letting their other coworkers down. It's uh, residents who live on healthy lifestyles. I have a really good friend who just similar to the gentleman calling earlier over Christmas ended up having to have major work done, three stints put in, big blockages, and fairly young guy. And, you know, he's lived really unhealthy. And, and, and you, you know, when you live really unhealthy, you're, you're a potential liability. Like, we all decide in the balance sheet of Newfoundland and Labrador, are we an asset or a liability? And, and it matters. And we all, we all have a role to play. And, and we can increase our value 
by being just a little bit healthier, by helping our families be healthier. Yeah, well, my status on that uh, helpful or or not probably changes minute to minute, call to call. And you're listen, and you're doing an amazing job, you and not David really. and everybody there. No, no, listen, you are, and you're inspiration to us all. And I just want to thank you for everything you do, and I just want to challenge everybody to you know just reflect because we're only as good as the sum. I mean, it's synergistic when we all work together, but the opposite is happening right now because it seems like every, it's everybody for the person for themselves. People retiring at 55 from the healthcare field because they can. Well, what about everybody who's left over? And, and like, it's like chicken. It's like little red hen, like or, or whatever. Like, you know, it's it's like when you need the help, who's going to be there to help you? It's like it's like in the when, you know an ultimate example is you go to the Boston uh, Holocaust Museum and there's a quote there from a minister who you know they they came for the homosexuals and we didn't do anything and you know they came for the the disabled people we didn't do anything they came for the Jews we didn't do anything and eventually they came for them. And there was nobody left to help them. What about if someone rent. turned that around on you, Tom? That's not to be confrontational or saucy, but Hang as on. opposed to the little brown hen, what about if someone said to you, you're playing a bit too much chicken little? Oh, man, man, man. Listen, if I was a sick Newfoundlander right now, I'd be terrified. Terrified. If my, if my children were sick, if it, like, and, and not just in Newfoundlander, because it's around the world. I mean, I mean, is it chicken little? Is the is the, is the sky falling? Well, I will argue if you look at the health, the mental health, and the physical health, and the environmental health of our world and our and our community. Man, oh man, I don't know. You got to have your head pretty deep in the sand not to see how bad it is, Patty. Well, uh, I know you weren't aiming that directly at me because if, no, if I don't no. know exactly how bad things are, then very no, few I, do. No, I know. I know. You're uh, right. It was not. It's, it's, listen, all of us, it's really easy to live and just ignore what's going on around us. And obviously, we've all done it for a long time. And, 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 and my job here is not to scare people. I just, I'm, I'm hopeful. Like, I'm optimistic. Again, I'm not, I wouldn't be making these phone calls and doing the work I'm doing trying to learn as much as I can if I didn't believe that this incredible place filled full of incredible people who not that long ago, you know, were these people rolling out to the headlines. Like, like humans don't evolve in a couple of generations. It takes millennia to evolve. So we're the same people. We have the same genetics. We have the same capability. It's all within us. We just need to try and find a way to be less hedonistic, less self-centered, and everybody just, like, make an effort. And I'm really, 2023, I made some big commitments to myself, and, and I'm going to Try and hold hold my up my end of the bargain, and try and increase my asset value to the province. And and I call on everybody else to, you know, search the heart, search the soul, look in the mirror, and say, hey, what can I do to make a little bit more of a difference? Because it'll make a difference. Five hundred twenty thousand people, man, oh man, the work we can all do collectively. Thanks for this, Tom. Take care, Appreciate everyone. the time. Bye-bye. Hey, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of the callers. Uh, you in line number three, wants to talk about his brother's issues with emergency services at the Waterford Hospital. That's next, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Paddy. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Oh, well, I, I've had better days. I, uh, uh, I suppose... Uh, I suppose that's the reason I'm calling in. I, um, I, I, I don't want to be called in today, but uh, quite frankly, I have nowhere else to go, uh, no one else to call because I'm out of options. Um, following, following up on what the last caller just said, um, the, sky, the sky is already falling on our healthcare system, and that's the reason I'm calling. Um, I, um, my, uh, my brother, who uh, has a... A history of schizophrenia, and I spent, you know, six months uh, or longer at the Waterford in the past. I had another episode last night, and uh, the eight one one nurse, who, um, who uh, she was, she was a lovely soul. I, I, I can't say enough about her. She, 
she uh, was so concerned after speaking to him and, and, and speaking to the officer, she she called the ambulance um, to come and um, and bring him out. And we're we're on the we're on the southern shore and and uh, for about forty kilometres from the, the city limits, so we're not too too far out. And there wasn't even an ambulance anywhere on the shore to to, to, to go get him. They had to send an ambulance from the uh, the health sciences. To uh, up to this way, it took them about uh, an hour and a half to get here, or, uh, and uh, the police had to be called because that's part of the protocol for these for these types of calls. And someone in a, a psychotic distress state, um, just for the safety of the, uh, the EMTs. But anyway, the police there wasn't any any police on the southern shore. The police had to be had to be dispatched from Holyrood. So we have a, a, an ambulance from. Health sciences, and we had the police from Holyrood, and and through the jigs and the reels, they got they got this man out to to the St Clair's. He got out around three o'clock this morning, and um, because the St Clair's is the only place to go now, because there's there's such staffing shortages at the Waterford that the assessment unit at Waterford is closed until the January seventeenth, and that was on your news uh, just before Christmas. And so anyway, um, long story short. Um, he, he, he didn't even get to see a psychiatrist. There's no psychiatrist there that was there to see him. Um, he was given a, a, a quick assessment by a nurse practitioner and uh, told that there was nothing that they could do for him, and they were discharging him. And this, this man is is not a very well man. He's in a he's in a, a distressed psychotic state and 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 needs the, the the supervision of of a psychiatric professional. And I can't even get him in the door to Waterford because it's closed. And I I I, I have nowhere else to go. And and I, I, I there's there's nowhere else for us to turn to. And and he's he's currently out on the street now. They even kicked him out of the hospital. Uh, and and he, he's out on the street now, waiting for for one of us to go pick him up. And I, I'm at my wit's end. I, I I'm uh, basically you know have a half mind to pick him up and bring him right to the Federation Building and march him to Tom Osborne's desk because Tom Osborne needs to look at the state of the situation of the healthcare system in this province. It's not good enough. It's it's, it's shambles. I'm going to try my level best not to use your name simply because I know it. Uh, okay, yes. couple of things. There's so much to this, and if you don't mind, I want to backtrack a little bit to the more to the start of this conversation with how the res- the police are required to respond to these types of calls. So there's long been a running problem with how that worked with law enforcement. Now yeah. they've got a new model. I think it's called the Memphis model, if I'm not mistaken. What did you see upon response? Was there a plainclothes person with mental health training as opposed to simply uniform officers? Let's go back to that because how that conversation starts, how that interaction begins, goes a long way to how it ends. Yeah, exactly, Patty. And, and I, I, I'd like to throw out a bouquet to the, the, the police that showed up last night because they, they were they were uh, really good, um, uh, but they were just uh, regular uniformed officers who, had, I mean, had to be dispatched from from Holyrood. Um, uh, at the Southern Shore is, is, a, is a fairly big spot, and 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 and, and these boys had to come over uh, from Holyrood and in, in you know to accompany an ambulance, um, and because the the, the the ambulance was not allowed to come until the, until the police are here. But that's um, that's the way this goes, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and so the ambulance uh, showed up. Then uh, I mean, the, 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 it took the ambulance an hour after the police got here. And so, well, well I mean, uh, just uh, pause my own situation here for a minute. What would happen if, if, if instead of 
what was going on and what would happen if this man was in a uh, having a heart attack or a cardiac arrest and and, and uh, having to wait for an ambulance to come from health sciences to the uh, to the southern shore uh, I mean, he'd be, he'd be dead ten times over before anyone got to him. We're, 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 taxpayers are paying out all kinds of money to private ambulance operators in the region, and we, and the ambulance and, and the ambulance operators don't even got anyone to man an ambulance. So what are we what are we paying tax dollars to, to, to private businessmen for to make a fortune for nothing when we got to send out Eastern Health ambulances from 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 uh, uh, health sciences? Well, we can't even get those represented by the Teamsters Union back at the table with that private ambulance operator because they have the ability to do exactly that, to stay away from the table. So it's a big deal. Um, That's a good point. I wonder if the province even prepared for the passing of 80-year-old Dr. Lada and the work that he did, not only as an advocate, but the enormous patient roster he carried well into his retirement years, we'll call them. So an assessment done by a nurse practitioner. And now your brother is on the street without getting too far in your own personal business and feel free not to answer what has been the result when he's presented and released without the type of treatment required presented to a psychiatrist some course of action taken and been just dismissed or released from the waterford in this case in clears what has been the real life outcome of that well, Paddy, I tell you now, uh, I was fighting tooth and nail three years ago to get this man serious help at Waterford, and it took several visits over a couple of months. And they sent him one time. They sent him home, and uh, he basically, you know, fell apart right away as soon as he came home again. And um, uh, basically, was trying to kill himself. Thought he was in a, you know, he didn't even know what what planet he was on. Um, and, and this man, uh, he has a history of, you know, um, all kinds of serious problems like that. I mean, he's, he, he, a couple of years ago, he taught, you know, the, 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 the people were coming to get him and he wanted to go, you know, he, he actually loaded up a 12-gauge shotgun to defend the house because he was convinced that all kinds of people were coming to get him. And last night on the 811 phone line, he was talking to the psychiatric nurse. He told the psychiatric nurse that, there was uh, uh, voices telling him to kill himself. And here they brings him out to the St. Clair's and he can't even see a psychiatrist and a nurse practitioner says he's all right to go. I mean, it's bizarre, Paddy. It's, it's, it's absolutely, we're in a crisis situation. This, this province is, is gone. I, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm going to, you know, recommend everybody get out while you can and the last person here, turn the lights off when you leave because there's nothing left. And and we can't. I can't even get a severely ill man to, uh, to see a psychiatrist. I can't. You know, um, what the hell are we? Are, are, what the hell are we doing as a problem? It's a fair question. Uh, this one is based on ignorance, so you'll have to forgive me. Is there anything such as? Uh, being committed because as the loving brother you say it's required, or is that something that we only see on Law and Order on television? Well, there's a process called certification, but it has to be uh, signed off by two uh, uh, doctors. Uh, and, I mean, that's that, we've been down that road before, too. Um, and uh, I can't even get them to see a psychiatrist. So, uh, I mean, I can't even get them to, over the threshold to be examined. And I, I have no faith in that. Uh, uh, whatever analysis that a, a nurse practitioner might have uh, done on him at three o'clock this morning or four o'clock this morning, 
I'm not I'm not trying to speak bad of this 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 person as a person. But I mean, they're they're probably overworked and 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 stressed out themselves. Uh, but um, I mean, something has to give because I know if, if I go out to pick him up now and bring him home, the, the cops and the ambulances will probably be here again this evening to bring him out and do the whole thing over again. And uh, I mean, the, the amount of stress. That this is, is putting, I mean, and not just on me. I mean, I'm, I'm big and ugly enough to take it. But my, 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 my poor old mother is watching her son start raving mad, run around the house, uh, uh, you know, schizophrenic, and uh, pleading with someone to, to help him. It's breaking her heart. And, 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 you know, I'm afraid something's going to happen to her. Uh, and, and nobody seems to care. Uh, nobody, nobody wants to do anything. I mean, I, do, do I have to drag him into Confederation Building and and show Tom Osborne the, the byproduct of of, of this this healthcare system? I mean, I'll do it. I've done worse. It's, it's getting it's getting to the point now where you know people need to, to, to demand uh, action. The talk is cheap. Yeah, well, it always has been. No doubt about that. So my couple of fears, and not to bring this conversation somewhere that you don't want to take it, but my fears here are that we're going to see the convergence of a couple of things that don't necessarily belong in the same breath, let alone the same paragraph. And that's things like medical assistance and dying. And that's things like bricks and mortar replacing the Waterford. But bricks and mortar are glossy and gleaming and shining and something nice to look at. But doesn't mean there's been any change in process, protocols, or approach to mental health care. So those two things, I think, are the next step in conversation, not necessarily about you and your brother, but for people in similar circumstances. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you're you're, you're right, Patty. Uh, you can have the fanciest building that you want, but as long as this type of you know lack of treatment is still going on, um, it's just as well that you have a tent set up on Duckworth Street because it's the same outcome. And and if this man if this man dies at his own hand or or God forbid kills someone else or, or you know, someone in the family has a heart attack because they're so stressed out about everything, well, um, this is going to be on the, the officials. This is, you know, they're, they're going to have to sleep with this because it's going to be on their conscience. And I, I, I'm i going to do everything I can to, to you know, to, to make... To make life uh, 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 a living hell for the people in charge who can't, who aren't doing anything, because it's time people speak up and 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 and, and make the you know uh, make the uh, the powerful people in this province listen. It's getting, uh, we're at a, uh, we're got, we're so far gone beyond a crisis situation. It's uh, it's 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 you know uh, it's unreal. I never thought I would ever see this situation. I, I honestly wish. I um, I wasn't living in this province because it couldn't get any worse than this. Uh, it really couldn't. Um, I mean, it's just um, I, you know, where where do we go from here? You know. <laughs> And that's the big question that I maybe I posed it clumsily because where to from here includes the evolving conversation about mental health and medical assistance in dying. Where to from here is a big part of the conversation of building a new mental health facility on the health uh, the health sciences complex. Where to from here includes the fact that pre-pandemic one in five Canadians would experience some mental distress and or mental illness. That number is already one in four. So put all those things together. We have the 
clear display of the perfect storm without any meaningful changes in the system. You can't have one without the other. So until we have a better understanding uh, put forward by and understood by and articulated by policymakers, politicians and other medical leaders, if they don't seem to understand what's actually happening, how can they possibly put forward policy and an appropriate spend to accommodate an ever-changing mental health landscape? Gone are the days of the key focus being on stigma. It's important. It remains to be important. But we've learned a lot about that. But we have not learned enough or very much at all about how we deliver the service. It's one thing to not be fearful of talking about it openly and honestly like you and I are this morning. It's helpful when we do it, but that doesn't mean that access has improved. So it's fine to talk about those numbers and the bell let's talk stuff and all of that kind of stuff. But until we hear from people who actually know it, have lived it, put themselves in elected official office capacity, nothing's going to change. Because so far, as far as I can tell, from all my years in the media, I've spoken to very few politicians who actually talk about mental health as if they understand it. Yeah, and and I, I'd encourage any any politician or, or any official uh, within you know the system who have any say or power at all spend. Spend a couple of days on West Tree A in in Waterford or or uh, East Tree A, uh, and then they'll see exactly you know what the regular people are dealing with and what you know uh, how how untreated mental illness and undertreated mental illness and and mental uh, mistreated mental illness it it not only destroys the patient but it destroys the family. I mean we're we're. Uh, I mean, this, this is a, a, a dark day in this house, and um, it's not getting any better. And, and, and there's no hope. The hope has gone out the window. Uh, I don't even know what's coming next. I mean, um, I, I'm fearful of what's going to happen this evening, uh, you know, or tonight or tomorrow. Um, and God forbid one of us, you know, has a heart attack from all the stress and, and is dead on the floor an hour before the ambulance even shows up. Um, I mean, but that's a discussion, I guess, for another day, the, the, the lack of ambulance services in, uh, in the region. But, I mean, that's um, it, it's just a, another symptom of the overall problem. The, the um, Obviously, uh, what we're doing is not working and, and, and just, you know, uh, changes here and there or a new building is not going to solve it. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, caller. Keep me in the loop if possible. I wish you well. Thanks a lot, Patty. I appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Boy, oh boy. Uh, break time. When we come back, Dave wants to talk about the elections pending at the FFAW to replace outgoing President Keith Sullivan. And Mike is there to talk about the tumultuous individual life and family life of Randy Drucken, dead at 57. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Uh... Line four, Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, hope you had yourself a, a good break over the holidays. Not too bad. How about you? Not too bad at all. It was uh, terrible weather, but, you know, nothing much you can do about that. You can run and bear it and make the most of it. Mm-hmm. But it was a good time with, you know, friends and family, and, and that's about as much as we expected, isn't it? Pretty much. I purposefully laid really low. Now, some of that was some illness kicking around friends and family, but uh, between myself and the couch and a blue bloods marathon and some hockey, that was it. 
lots of hockey and lots of coaching. Yeah. Very good. Good. Well, and, and, and overall, that's how you wanted it. Successful, successful holiday. Absolutely. Thank you this morning, Patty, for the opportunity to, to call in and reach out to some of the voting uh, members that will be voting a couple of days on the presidency of the FFAW. <clears throat> Normally, when you run for any type of position, you usually know, first of all, I guess, who the people are that will be voting, and you would expect to be able to reach out and to and to uh, to be able to, I guess, you know, ex- explain why you would like to seek this position and, and what you could bring to it. Well, that hasn't been a very easy process, and I've been told by my other fellow, another one of the fellows that are running, that he has had the same difficulty, that we could not get our hands on the list of those involved in the voting process. But I have had quite a few, uh, not quite a few, a few that have contacted me, five or six of them, that do have a vote and kind of wanted to pick my brain over, over Christmas. And I did, and I had some great conversations. And I guess mirrored and confirmed a lot of the different issues that exist within the union right now. And I guess first and foremost for most people, uh, as far as like enterprise owners and and buyers and stuff are concerned, are the upcoming uh, negotiation of prices on the various species that make up the bulk of our fishing industry in in this province. The world trends have been showing that, like in particular for lobster and crab, there's been great opportunity. But what we've seen on the ground is that for 2022 and 23, despite the fact that the, the value of the exported prices of these uh, of these species are are through the roof, a lot of it had to do with the higher price being paid, but also that we're putting more into the marketplace because others are not. I mean, fishing uh, returns south of here for lobster and, and crab in particular are significantly down. So what that means for people involved in the fishery in Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, because no good to think that Nova Scotia does not set the benchmark for what takes place as far as pricing in Newfoundland is concerned. We're almost always, always compared to Nova Scotia price. They play a role. I don't know if they play a role more so than they set the benchmark because they'll always see that, like, case in point, there's a lot of integration between buying effort in Nova Scotia and, and Newfoundland. And the difference usually will come down to a dollar or a dollar fifty a pound on most species or whatever. Uh, that's basically for handling. Well, I mean, if you're shipping out twenty thousand pounds of lobster, that's an awful expensive run. If you got to take a dollar or better hit per pound on what you're selling, I mean, it doesn't cost that to get it off of this island. So, I'm a firm believer that one of the things that needs to be done is a unified and informed effort by the union in the setting of these prices and not leave it to the price setting panels, not leave it to the open industry uh, call on what the price will be. There's trends, prices elsewise, market indicators where these prices should be, but they're very seldom, very, very seldom followed. We have an industry that, case in point, when you have, we've been drastically affected by inflationary prices from the U.S., 
in terms of these two resources. What happens to the price of crab and lobster in the U.S. if it drops? It drops, and they're always reporting on the retail end of that industry. Well, there's an awful lot of room between the time it comes on the water, the wholesale end of this industry, and the final retail. Yeah, that's value. not just about the price at the price setting panel, though. There's there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, you can talk about you know if you had grade A cod landed at the wharf yes. in uh, Riverhead, and you got fifty cents, and that the exact same guy who landed it took a uh, trip down to Florida, went to buy salt cod in the grocery store down there, paid eighteen ninety nine a pound. So <laughs> there's a lot of hands got touched before that bit of cod made its way to a salted fashion on a uh, Florida grocery store shelf. Then I think there's more complicated to it. You know, there's yes. this how it's labeled. When, you know, even something as fundamental as fishing gear to protect right whales, how does that factor in? How does it factor in other countries, for instance, let's go Greenland, Denmark, what have you, and the controlling agreements which are allowed there. You got the big player onshore, can own the boats offshore, they can own the trucks, they can own the markets and the marketing arm. Their ability to rob Peter to pay Paul all the way down the line is much different than we have set up here. Now, there's lots of big companies here that own the trucks and the boats and have a piece of the plant. Not supposed to, but we we know what happens out there. So I think pricing becomes a lot more complicated than the just three people banging around prices. I don't think it works fundamentally. You know, someone basically representing the ASP, someone basically representing the AFW, the FFAW, and then someone basically trying to be the independent voice. Seems like it's more smoke and mirrors than it is a practical market sounding to come up with the best possible 100% price. 100% agreed. 100% agreed. And you just nailed it right in a nutshell it's kind of stole a bit of my thunder it's kind of where i was going okay <laughs> in the meantime don't need to tell you a big lot about it either you're quite informed i do believe that it is necessarily you know it's a time where change is warranted and not only for pricing reasons and whatever within this union but to get confidence back in the union because an awful lot of people do not have confidence that they're being adequately or or appropriately represented shall we say i mean when it comes down to this just this process i looked at the constitution i mean there's as much written in that constitution to protect the electoral process and to allow them to do what they're doing right now as there is anything else like i mean why is there not a vice president of the ffaw why is the rest of the administrative uh arm not continued i mean say case in point if a president steps down and there was like two or three months to a general election where the entire membership would have a say and a vote well they continue on as vice or whatever but if the seat is vacated they can put somebody in there and then they run another three years and there's no interpretation or no distinction within the constitution for that these are the things and a lot of it that has brought about and i talked to a lot of people not a lot of people but a few people from the 60 that will be voting to find that you know but this is not as closed a process as i thought a lot of these people have their own minds and they're going to use them well i'm hoping that enough here and enough know that i guarantee you if i'm if i'm, I'm successful with this as far as negotiation is concerned, it'll be a new level of transparency for everybody. I appreciate the time, Dave. Thanks for the call. Thank you very much, Patty. All the best. And I uh, appreciate anybody's support in a couple of days when we vote. Thank you for this. Thanks. Take okay, care. Dave. Bye-bye. All right. I guess uh, to put it out there in formal fashion, uh, Dave Callahan is running to be the next president of the FFAW, as is Jason Sullivan, as is Greg Pretty, And, of course, Mr. Pretty has been the name uh, endorsed by the board in quick order after Keith Sullivan offered his resignation. 
Mr. Purdy's been with the union and organized labor for some four decades. He currently is the man at the charge. He's the director inside of industry, I think. Is it, Dave, for the FAW? Yeah, something like that. Uh, Michael, appreciate your time. Let's talk about Randy Drogan after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Michael, you're on the air. Hey, uh, happy New Year's, Paddy, to you and your listeners. Same to you, Mikey. I uh, appreciate the privilege of commanding your open line, sir. I'd like to thank you for that. No problem at all. Sir, I, I'm a little bit uh, vexed about the NTV news uh, after the, the passing of Randy Drogans, how they would command social media and bring up all Randy's uh, dark past. Uh, Randy Drogans, sir, I just wanted to command the open line. He would never defend himself. He was a meek, humble gentleman, sir. And uh, for them to go on open law or NTV news and bring up about Paul and Randy and Derek and all that, it was the wrong timing. Uh, Randy Jurgen, sir, he has a beautiful family, he has grandchildren, and it was a traumatic uh, experience for them to wake up and Randy's passing. And they were dealing with the trauma, and uh, they never even got a chance to reach the family before the NTV News jumped all over. And I'm really, uh, really upset at NTV News that uh, they would actually go and bring out Randy's past. Uh, if you look on social media and Facebook, Randy Jurgens is one of the most caring, kindest gentlemen in Newfoundland. And the only reason why I'm coming on today to talk about Randy is to let the listeners know that Randy was so caring to his community. He was blessed in the community. And all that money that he actually got from the Ron conviction, uh, he, he actually gave that away to the community. And I just wanted to let that and get it off my chest that Randy Juergens was a very kind gentleman in our community, sir. Yeah, I mean, at the age of 57, Randy, I believe, had eight grandchildren uh, at the time of his death. I don't know how quickly NTV moved on it. I really have no idea, Michael. Uh, I do know that, by and large, news media outlets, they don't speak to it until it's been confirmed that the family has been informed, and that's wide and far. Here's what yeah. gets complicated. Yeah. Is that the name Drukin conjures up all kinds of images in this part of this neck of the woods anyway? I mean, yes. I lived in a neighborhood that's not too far from where the boys lived, so we that's knew right. them when we were children. We knew that's Randy. Right. I knew Paul probably better than the rest of them. Jody, were all a bit afraid of. Derek was wild, wild card, and you know, and I knew yeah. Randy very little, although he's very, very quiet. So it's hard to avoid talking about Randy, especially like I mean, you hear names like Brian Dalton looking for a parole out on the West Coast, whose name comes right to the forefront, Greg. Parsons. Then you talk about all the wrongfully convicted people in this province, Randy Dalton. And then, of course, yes, Randy Drukin. And that becomes a mysterious legal justice system, family issue, all woven into one. If you don't know the lads, it becomes as much fascinating as it is important. So I can't defend or condemn another media outlet because I don't know how fast they moved on it. But I do know when I heard Drukin, I knew that there was going to be a lot to the story because there always has been. Yes, that's right. And I respect you saying that, sir. But I just wanted to put it on the ear, on the open ear. Yes, you're going to hear the Jogan's name, the William's name, and different names in Newfoundland that are going to conjure up all these emotions and feelings. But there's another side to it, too, sir, that he was a very kind, well-respected man, sir. Oh, I, I don't have anything nasty to say about Randy Drogan. I, I, I yeah. simply don't. He was, as far as yeah. I could tell, he was the most quiet one. Now, I don't mind, and this is not speaking ill of the dead or ill of the incarcerated, but no. Derek Connor was a larger-than-life figure around here. Even though he was a fairly small man, he was larger than life. Paul, big, tall, scrappy Paul, didn't make any bones about who he was. But Randy, no. I never really heard him say anything, let alone anything you know, menacing. 
Thank you so much, sir. Because that's our justice in Newfoundland, sir, is failing a lot of people, sir. And I just wanted to come on open line, and I want to tell you thank you for just allowing me to express my feelings that Randy was uh, a really kind gentleman, and uh, I just like to thank you for that. I appreciate the time, Mike. You take care of yourself. Oh, God bless you, sir. Okay, all right. Bye bye. Bye bye. And again, you know, it is always easy to, or maybe no, it's not easy, to bite your tongue to, you know, what, how people say, you don't speak ill of the dead. I didn't really know Randy very well. I had plenty of interactions with Paul. Plenty. And I didn't think he, I mean, the boys have a criminal past. Not, I'm not talking about Randy. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about who knew what, when, who did what, who was incarcerated, rightfully or wrongfully. And I think Randy spent, what, eight years in prison? Before it was proven that he did not commit, it was six, was it Dave? Six years in prison before it was proven that he did not commit the crime that he was uh, convicted of. You know, one step further on that conversation, even just in this really small province, and these are only cases that we know about. People are quick to, when we see the horrible stories about uh, the, the murders that take place and other heinous crimes, it's talking about capital punishment. Even in my lifetime, we have three examples of fellas who would have perished at the hands of a lethal injection had it been a corporal, or pardon me, a capital punishment in place. Parsons didn't do it. Dalton didn't do it. Randy Drunken did not do it. Now, of course, there's going to be the Snyder remarks from the sideline that say, well, he might not have done that, but he did plenty. That's irrelevant to the fact. That's where there's the infallibility of the human component of the criminal justice system. I know that it feels good, an eye for an eye, a pound of flesh and all the rest, but it doesn't work, even if you want to factor in uh, dollars and cents. It costs more, and we can only look to the United States, who has a long track record, and even though they're doing away with uh, capital punishment more and more, you, you want them dealt with. Someone serving a sentence on death row, by the time they meet their maker or they meet their executioner, which will be far less than the amount of time spent in the general population on C block, it costs more to incarcerate that offender on death row than it does someone who serves 50 years behind bars. 50. You know, don't get me going on how much it costs to incarcerate someone in the federal system anyway. For a man, about $200,000 a year. For a woman, about two twenty-five. And yet we talk about harm reduction and some issues uh, that we can do more with to keep people out of the criminal justice system, to cost far less, and we're all safer. How about that for an idea? Let's take a break. If you're in the queue, we appreciate your patience. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Bernard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy New Year to you. The same to you, sir. Uh, Patty, I don't know if I'm stupid or what, but I got a little situation here this morning, and uh, I figured I'd call in the open line. Uh, I went to an auto parts store last week and picked up some parts for my uh, SUV. Actually, it was a wheel wheel cylinder that I picked up, uh, brake cylinder. Okay. And uh, when I bought brake cylinder, of course, there's a a core charge uh, when you buy it because you bring your old one back and then you you get your core charge back. So uh, I put the part on. This morning I brought the part, the old part back. And uh, so the guy says, well, that's $30. So I took the $30 and put it back on my card. And 
I went out in my vehicle and I'm thinking, you know, I paid taxes on that. And I checked my bill, sure enough, I paid uh, $4.50 taxes on it. So I go back in the store and I says to the guy, I got a little problem. Like when I bought this part and I had to pay the core charge, I also paid taxes. But I said, I didn't get the taxes back. No, he said, we don't give the taxes back. I said, oh, don't give the taxes back. So I said, I've been in a lot of stores in the past and bought a lot of things that I carried back, and I've always got my taxes back. Well, you don't get taxes back on automotive parts that you buy and pay the core you don't get the taxes back now i i i can't understand why uh, i wouldn't get it back and so i figured this morning that like if nothing else i'll let people know that uh, uh, this is a, a thing that they tell me that that happens and and there's nothing we can do about it Lots of different examples out there about taxes and fees we pay, whether it be for recycling and electronics and how much of that actually happens. The same thing with the rubber tax, the, when we were paying a tax on our tires and, of course, shipping them out. of Probably were shipping, uh, we were shipping some 400,000 tires out a year, paying the province of Quebec to take them off our hands. There's a bunch of fees where it's highly questionable is how the money gets spent, who collects it, and whether or not it should be getting paid back to the customer. Uh, yeah, I can understand uh, some some things, but when you buy something and, and you pay the, the tax on it, uh, I can't understand why you can't get your tax back when you when you go back with that item. I don't know. I hadn't been down that path before, so I'm not sure how that works. There's I places. I don't know if there's anybody else out there that have. If, uh, well, apparently there must be, according to what they're telling me, because they say they don't give it back. There's a place to lodge a complaint and/or to get an explanation. Okay, where would that be? All those consumer-related issues get uh, the formal place to make that complaint is at Service NL, the Department of. Service NL. Yep. Yeah, they have a consumer affairs division. Okay. Let's see here now if I can get you a very specific spot to do exactly that. Uh, consumer advisors, consumer protection. Here we go. Consumer protection, consumer affairs. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, consumer. I guess we'd, I'd lodge it under consumer alerts. Yeah, so let's see if I have a very specific number to reach them there. No, it's all a generic number. It comes back to 4834 for all of them, but it is that service NL, so their departmental number is 729-4834. Yes, sir. Okay, Patty, thank you. My pleasure. Good luck with it. Let me know what happens. Okay, I will. All right, thanks. thanks. Okay, have bye-bye. A good one. You too, bye-bye. I just keep rolling here. Let's go to line number five. Wade, you're on the air. Good morning, Pally. Good morning to you. I'm just calling in this morning. I wanted to speak about the, well, two issues. Actually, the medevac condition in uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay and the lack of staff in our healthcare system again. What's happening? Um, my wife, who's, uh, she's a cancer care patient, and she's been having a lot of trouble here 
with some lung issues, fluid in the lungs. She was admitted at the request of her oncologist on the 26th. Uh, they told her she was waiting on a bed in Health Sciences. On the 28th of December, her bed became available at the Health Sciences, and she was waiting on a medevac to come, flight to come in. On the 29th, and the medevac flight came in, and she was told she was leaving that evening. Uh, so 20 minutes later, they came in and told her that there was no team team to go out with her. Uh, due to staffing issues, she couldn't go, and that they would try again in the morning. So the next morning on the 30th, they uh, came back in and said there was, they still couldn't go. They were going to try again later that day. Uh, finally, on the 31st, the doctor came in and said she might be, she should be okay to take a commercial flight to St. John's. And she could get a cab and go to the health sciences to the emerge. Uh, shortly after that, they came back again and told her that her bed was no longer available at the health science. So now she's back home again, still having issues, and no way to know what's going on if they're ever going to see her. So were the issues surrounding Medivac all about lack of crew, or is there any weather involved, or what's the circumstances? No weather involved at all. It's all crewing. Fuzz of boys. So we were two days with no beds and then three days trying to get to the bed. And then the bed was given, understandably, to another, another patient out there. But then we don't know where we're left to. I've been speaking to the MHA. Uh, I've got a message left with uh, the leader of the opposition to try to see if somebody can actually get on the ball here and give us some help. Well, hopefully someone can, but, I mean, we've heard these stories, in particular from Labrador, frequently, I'll say, and all too common a story coming from Labrador. So as much as the problems we'll talk about, some measures and movements they've taken regarding ambulatory service, amalgamating central dispatch with ground and air, that's all fine and dandy, but that's just uh, that's organizational stuff. That doesn't mean that there's going to be a crew. So, and even the difference between pediatric medevac and or the medevac system at large, there's some glaring problems there. It's, and it's it's not that it was a small issue she had to go out for. No, it doesn't sound like originally it. told that she was not well enough to go on a commercial flight. She had to go medevac. So did anything actually change with her condition between you're not well enough and all of a sudden you are? Or was this just, did it come across as, well, we've run out of options here. Go ahead and hop on Air Canada. Uh, her condition did improve quite a bit when, in the it did. days that she was in there. Uh, it's... Since then, it's starting to deteriorate again. Uh, now, this is not the first time she's had staffing issues over here. She tried to get in to see the doctor when this issue started back in March and was told, your doctor is on maternity leave. We will put you on a wait list. And it took seven months for her to see a doctor. And what, she just needs to see a cardiologist? Uh, right now, she's, I guess there's a procedure to drain the fluid from her lungs and around her heart. Uh, She's trying to get out to see uh, a lung specialist and I guess her oncologist, I guess, to see when uh, when to restart treatments or to get a treatment plan. Have you been told some sort of timeline? Because we've had similar conversations with the lack of radiation therapists and the fact that some people are choosing to go to Toronto. Is there a timeline when anything might be too late? because that's some of the be-all and end-alls when we talk about treatment plans and, you know, if it's not done inside the next 14 days, it's a waste of time. Do you know anything like that which would possibly light a fire under the the system? We haven't even been able to get her out to a specialist to find out a timeline. 
Oh, boy. And so where is she today, at home or in the hospital? Uh, today she's at home. She's, she actually was told that she was on a to-do list to get back to, to reevaluate. And so what's your plan? Are you going to try to get her here closer to the health sciences so that when and if a bed pops up, we don't have to go down the path of waiting for a medevac or waiting for a commercial flight or what the, whatever the case may be? Uh, before going on a commercial flight, I certainly hope that they would run another scanner, do some more tests to find out that she, in fact, is healthy enough to do that. Uh, but my call right now is hoping that somebody whether it's the leader of opposition or the MHA here or the CEO of the hospital or somebody can get on the ball and reach out to me or realize that this is a bigger issue than just us being at home worrying about it. So Mr. Brazel or Mr. Brown, your services are required, as would be the minister responsible, even though the day-to-day operation is an easy enough one for health ministers and ministers of community service to not get intimately involved with. So Mr. Brazel or Mr. Brown, if your offices are listening, please give way to call. If you need his number, send me an email. I'll give it to you. They can definitely send you an email for, the, for it. Uh, Mr. Brazel already ha- should already have my number. I left him a message. Oh, I don't doubt it. Over the weekend, so. I'm just not allowing any wiggle room. If they say they don't have the number, I do. Let me know what happens, Wade. I'll see if I can get either or in touch with you. Okay. Appreciate the time. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go and take a break. Uh, Angela's there. Let's talk about the closure of St. Teresa's. That's out in Ship Harbor. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Angela, you're on the air. Good morning. This is Angela calling from Pafantia. Um On December the 15, 2022, it was announced in, um, in Mass that St. Teresa's Church in Ship Harbor will be closing as of January 2nd, so it's already closed now. And it will be closed until the date they are sold, that the church is sold. Okay. I like to state that the Archbishop has signed the death certificate for the community ship harbor. The only thing is left in that community now is the community center and the post office. The bishop expects people from ship harbor, well, also Fox Harbor churches, closed until it's sold too. They expect people from Ship Harbor to go to Dumville for Mass, which is about 20 minutes away. In that little community where I grew up, I know a lot about this little community. There is a lot of dangerous hills and turns and hills and turns on Ship Harbor Road. That is dangerous, especially in the winter. Patty, I wouldn't even dream about going on that hill, on that road in the winter, especially in a snowstorm. Shep Harbor got seniors and everything. They plan to put St. Teresa's Church up for $100,000. How in God's world with seniors that's on social assistance, that's on um, Canada Pension and everything, get $100,000. There, 
to barely do nut themselves in Ship Harbor. And on top of that, Angela, even if the the group of seniors in the community, Fox Harbor, Sharp, Ship Harbor, or anywhere else, put their money together and had the hundred thousand, doesn't even mean you're going to have a priest. Exactly. When's the? I mean, a couple of questions. Did you have a full time priest, or did you just have one to come into Ship Harbor on rotation? Um, Ship Harbor and Fox Harbor used to do every second week. Okay. And on. December 18th, I was in Ship Harbor for the, for one of the masses, for the, for the memory tree. The priest stood up in Ship Harbor at St. Teresa's Church in Ship Harbor because I heard it with my own two ears. And I say a lot of people in Ship Harbor heard it too. Said, um, as of January 2nd, this church will be closed. I know the hills are very, very challenging. I looked and I had to bite my tongue, Patty, because I felt so challenging. It's more than challenging. So realistically, then, with your worry about the drive, and look, I can picture in my, mind, my mind's eye the road from Dunville into uh, your community, and there are some very tricky spots. So does this basically mean that your days of going to Mass, especially in the winter, are over? Well, they also close Sacred Heart Church in Plancha for six months, but if they close my home community church, I'm out. I'm done. I will never go back to Mass again, only on Friday and Christmas Eve. Yeah. So, just out of curiosity, were there many people who were still parishioners in both Ship Harbor or Fox Harbor? Yes and no. There was very many, but when they put um, Ship Harbor and Fox Harbor um altering their masses, when Ship Harbor would have to go to Fox Harbor, the Bolton would say no money, because Ship Harbor was not going to go up over that hill in dangerous conditions. And if the bishop thinks that Ship Harbor is going to go to Dumville or go to Freshwater, he better think again. Because I heard from many, many people, they are not going to church after they close St. Teresa's. And not to put you on the spot, Angela, do you know how long St. Teresa's has been in Ship Harbor? Since World War II. My grandfather donated that land, and the, pre- the bishop said in the letter, I know there, there is sense of betrayal. Betrayal is not the word. He should have went down to Ship Harbor, went in the cemetery, and spit on my grandfather's grave. He donated that land and never even asked him for a cent. It's a common story, isn't it? Because whether it be... uh I want to say St. Angeles, uh, the hall down in Marystown or what have you, we've got f- either families or communities that there was just a piece of land 
given to the church for all intents and purposes to build a, uh, a church on or a parish hall or for to create a cemetery. And all of a sudden, the Royal Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation just owns it and has taken it upon themselves to sell it when they maybe never put a nickel into it, maybe never put a, a one ounce of elbow grease into building a church, just exactly. providing priests. That's, That's the way it. it is in Ship Harbor. Oh, my. And oh right now, we don't even know. My parents are buried in St. Teresa's Church. So is my grandparents, aunts, uncles, everybody is buried in that cemetery. We don't even know. I have tried the bishop after dinner to find out if we're even going to have a cemetery mass this summer. He might have to have a layperson operated unless the uh, church sends someone out for that specific occasion, which is going to be tricky. And I can't answer that question because I don't know. But I don't even you know, know. It's one thing to have access to the cemetery, quite another for cemetery celebrations, including the annual cemetery mass, to uh, happen. So that's a good question. I'm not so sure you're going to get a very quick answer, but yeah. Like I said, is I remember... In 89 or 1990, I was on school bus. We had to come up from Dunville to Ship Harbor. And I was only about 10 or 11 years old. I'm not sure exactly how old I was, but this memory is so vivid. Turn around, and we had to go down through a snowstorm. We were on top of a hill called the Bay Couple Mash Hill on Ship Harbor Road. And one politrist comes, and we got stuck up on that hill until a plow came. I say it was about four or five hours. Angela, I'm sorry to hear it. I can hear the disappointment in your voice. When you get an answer one way or the other, or even if you don't get an answer from the Archbishop about providing a member of the clergy for cemetery mass, I'd be curious to hear because of something similar to me and my family. Most of my family on my mother's side are, are buried down at Holy Rosary in Portugal Cove. Now, that property's been sold. We have been told there's, there's an access point secured for those who'd like to visit the cemetery, but that's a long way between that and an actual cemetery mass, so I hadn't even really thought of that for better or worse. So if you get an answer, if you let me know, I appreciate it. I will. And I am, I like to tell Ship Harbor and Fox Harbor and Placentia. Now they're saying in six months period, they may reopen Sacred Heart Church in Placentia. With what happened to St. Teresa's Church in Ship Harbor and Sacred Heart Church in Fox Harbor, I wouldn't hold my breath. Because I, like a mem- person said to me, I'm not mentioning his name, but a per- person said, I smell a rat, and he is a big rat. And guess who that is? Archbishop Peter Hunt. Because he should know that the roads going to Ship Harbor and Fox Harbor is absolutely dangerous and tricky. He sh- and he should have known that this was going to upset people. Well, it obviously has. Angela, I'm late for my news break, but if you get back to me and let me know about the cemetery mass issue in particular, I'd appreciate it. No problem. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. You know, as much as that's not an issue for some of you listening this morning, 
for many of the faithful, the long-term parishioners, and like the family connection as a congregant, the father's land, the family land is where the church is built, and that through, through all the jigs and the reels, through no fault of their own, the parishioners are bearing the brunt. Look, nobody but nobody disputes the fact that the compensation has got to be paid to the victims at Mount Cashel. The guesstimate is it's going to take somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million, and they're nowhere near achieving that. Well, nowhere near. Somewhere around 31 has been brought in the door in commitments. But folks who were part of the church, built the church, kept the church going all these years, and now it's gone away. And what was their involvement in it? Nothing. Terrible. Let's take a break. When we come back, Ronald's down in Bonavista. He's going to tell us what he sees on the water, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back. Let's go to line number eight. Ronald, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Patty, Patty, my name is Ronald Coles. I'm not in Bonifesta. I'm I'm in Nova Scotia. I've been talking to you before, uh, not last year, year before last, about the crab price. Okay. I got the crab price to go from water to a very low price in Newfoundland. And I heard Dave on there this morning talking about the crab price. He said there was only a dollar in difference, but hey, it went from two seventy five to three dollars in Newfoundland up to five sixty five. I'm not in Nova Scotia. It had been up to like ten to twelve dollars a pound. Last fall it was nine dollars a pound. But today I wasn't calling about the crab. I was calling about Bama Vista because a lot of mackerel is up on the shoreline there. I got uh, people send me a few pictures. And when I was in Newfoundland, well, my father, all my grandfathers, all my family, it was our God-given rights to go and pick up this mackerel, take it home for food, or I used to fill up my fridges with mackerel and squid, used to run ashore in the fall for, for my crab bait in the spring. And now I've been hearing from quite a few people, I've been saying that DFO, uh, you're not allowed to uh, to take this fish out of the shoreline, and there's millions of pounds there. What is the truth about it? Uh, good question. My understanding is, well, look, there's a couple of things. When Fiona hit, this is curious, because DFO, before they put out any uh, well wishes for those being impacted by the storm and their houses being swept out to sea, they were reminding folks not to pick up the lobsters off the beach because it was illegal, which is sort of tone-deaf nonsense. But if I can get the Capelin off the beach in Middle Cove, why can't I take the mackerel off the beach in Bonavista? That's a good question. Patty, I've been picking up fish my father and his father before him. Listen, this is a God-given rights. There's not one judge in Newfoundland would go against any man or woman that's going to take this bait and put it up for the winter for the spring. Because this mackerel is not only good for crab, it's good for lobsters. I've been talking to fish buyers here. If Somebody, say, you know, in Newfoundland. Like, I was talking to my son about this. If he could pick up 50,000 pounds, I can sell here today in Nova Scotia for a good buck. Uh, this is a discrimination against all of our people. And the DFO is changing the rules every damn day, just like the FFAW, because Dave was on the FFAW. I would never mark a hex for the FFAW, because since the FFAW took over the Hingshore fishery, we are destroyed. If there was no crab in Newfoundland right now, the inshore fishermen would starve to death. And that's like this mackerel. It's millions of dollars there. That's lying on the shoreline. There's lots of money that can be made. This fish is running ashore, act of God. And nobody never dumped. 
That's like the wheels run so short. I'm a Labrador. I see the house comes and hand nails goes and gets it, whatever. It's like everything. Sharks comes ashore. Squids comes ashore. A few years ago in Bay of East Blakes, I was living in Rosport or in Breeder. I went up to Mains in the house. I picked up a full pot load of cod. I come down by the wharf. I let everybody take it and carry it home for the winter. We got God-given rights. And we got the, what I call the mafia, the DFO. They're destroying Newfoundland. And I think it's time for the young men in Newfoundland and the people that's not involved in the picture, everybody stick together and destroy what the mafia is doing. The mafia is destroying everything. We got nothing left. What, who are the mafia? DFO. Oh. Yeah, I mean, people will dispute the whole concept of God-given right, but once it makes the beach, I'm not so sure there's any one entity. Like, I mean, again, maybe this is a bit outside the box here, but if a whale washes ashore, the municipality will point the finger to the province, will point it back to the municipality, will point it at the feds, will point it back to the province, and we don't know who's responsible. If something hits the shore... It should be pretty much like salvage. If a capelin is good enough to haul off the beach in Middle Cove, why can't I take a mackerel? Because before long, it would be no good to anybody for anything if it's uh, stranded on the beach for very long. So why can't that fish make it into a bucket and into a crab pot or a lobster pot? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. That's right. Listen, that mackerel, I'm airing Nova Scotia right now. That's, that mackerel is a one prime bait there for lobster. No, don't get me wrong. I fished there at Swordfish. I fished at Allabut, Bluefin Tuna. Uh, that mackerel is one of the per- best baits I've ever seen, especially for Allabut and, and tuna fish and, and Bluefin Tuna. I'm telling you right now, that mackerel is a number one bait. And it's a disgrace that, that, that we cannot uh, put it away for, for the season coming up, right? There's lots of people in Newfoundland, and they get lots of cool storages. And no doubt there's lots of fish plants with nothing in the freezers right now that this fish should never have been destroyed. But this is what DFO is doing. Every day, they're making up different rules. It's like our FFAW. There's nobody standing up for the inshore fishermen. And this guy, Dave, he mentioned a dollar in difference. Uh, $3 to $9, is that, is that only a dollar in difference in crab price? Lobster price up here in San Diego? The cod up here this year? I seen cod come to the warfare. It was garbage. But... The fisherman still got paid two fifty a pound because it was large cost. He knew for land. What are we getting? Average about sixty-five cents. Yeah, just one time. But listen, listen. I was at this crab the other year. I got the price to go up. I went to three buyers there last week when I knew a little bit this macro, and every buyer said, "Ron, if you can get it there, we'll buy it right now." But just like here, I was talking to Ryan Blair there. Where is the free trade? What happened? Newfoundland is not a part of Canada because we got no free trade in Newfoundland. We got nothing. We're not allowed to do nothing. Well, there's all kinds of provincial uh, trade barriers in place, which actually cost Canadians billions of dollars a year for some territorial nonsense. Uh, that's decades old. But the specific question about Capelin on the beach versus Mackerel on the beach, I don't know the answer, but I can get it. Well, like I'm saying, up here, as, as for free trade, as for picking up fish, like the fish buyer said, if that's Mackerel, I showed show them pictures. Like they said, if that fish runs your air, that'd be all gone to the cold storage. I mean, yeah, up here, if I want it tomorrow morning, I catch me, cut me out of it, but I want to go to Boston and sell it, I can go. I ain't got no just free trader in Nova Scotia. 
Well, we've done it too. We've actually had the boys steam across when they weren't landing crab here. Was it crab in particular Terry Ryan's young fellow went across on with Nova Scotia? Yeah, so uh, we do that. I mean, it, of course, severely reduces your, your profit when you're talking about the extra cost of diesel in particular to steam across. But, yeah, we can actually do that too. The difference with us is, you know, can you get enough per pound wherever you land to cover over the additional operating costs, which, of course, depends on the, uh, the species, I suppose. Okay, you take a crab, no? Yep. I was talking to a great old fish fisherman in Newfoundland, not last year, year before last, and it was all coming this way because the price of fuel wasn't up like it is today. But if you can come over here and gain 4 or $5 on a pound and a boat can bring 100000 pounds, uh, my brain's not very good, but I think it's worth a while because four or $500,000 more from one trip of fish, I don't think you're going to look at... Uh, a few dollars for a fuel. Right? Fair enough. Uh, I don't know if I can do much with that, but I can certainly try to get an answer to Capelin versus Mackerel off, off the beach. I, uh, well, listen, I'm, I'm going to say it's a discrimination against all the people in Newfoundland, and if the people in Newfoundland, not only the fishermen, there's people out there probably home today. Well, I wish I had a fry of that mackerel. They can't go to Sobeys and buy it because it's too damn dear. Okay. Or Dominion is too damn dear. But this fish is God-given from the Lord there, and it should not have been rotten on this beach. The people should have been allowed to pick it up, do whatever they want with it. And so long as we're going to let DFO do this, listen, Newfoundland, I heard one guy say, close off the lights, turn off the lights and leave. Listen, I'm telling you, to what I've heard on Open Line Show, my God, it's going to bottom up. Because we're letting the FFFW is number one. There's nothing left in short. They shut down every fishery we had. We from a salmon to a caitlin to they give away everything. And now today, they just took the roots away from what my fathers and grandfathers fought for. They're not allowed to go and take nothing off the shore. I think it's a discrimination. I appreciate the time all the way from Nova Scotia. Thank you, Ronald. Okay, thank take, you, bud. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, final break of the morning. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. Hello there. I'm Mike Maloney up in Torscove. I live off of Beachy Cove Road in Torscove. Very good. And, uh, Paddy, i got a question to ask you, you now. Do you have a dog? No, I do not. No longer. No? Because uh, I was wondering if you could get a loan of a dog and come up here and walk the road with us. And you know what we're talking about up here about the road, uh, the, the, how deplorable Beachy Cove Road is. I just phoned the Department of Highways over in the depot in Torscove, and their grader is down, and they can't grade the road. And there's more potholes. I drove three kilometers yesterday, and it took me 20 minutes to drive half of Beachy Cove Road. The road is about 5.6 kilometers long, and uh, you cannot drive the road. Now, there's no, uh, if there's a fire up here or an ambulance got to come in, they're going to break up their equipment trying to get in over the road. It's wicked, the road is. And I wonder if uh, Siobhan Cody, she's uh, on the radio this morning talking about her purebred uh, dogs. I wonder if she'd take her and Mr. O'Driscoll and the Minister of Transportation and come up and walk Beachy Cove Road with these dogs and see what it's like. And then they can go over the road and then they can come to my place here and have a meeting and see what they're going to do with Beachy Cove Road. 
This has been going on since 1996. And they don't want to fill in. All it does is grade the road the odd time. And they move one rock from one side to the other. Vichikov uh, Road, there's a lot of liveries on it. A lot of old people lives on it, and it's part of Torskov, and it's the only way down the southern shore if there's anything happens out in Torskov with the power dam out there. Okay, and so there's no other way down there. What's the know? what's the issue with the road? Is it potholes or is it divots or the shoulders gone or? There's col- there's some culverts needs to be replaced. There's no such thing as that, and there's a lot of bog on the road. It's the old railway track from way back when, and the road needs. Uh, a grant from the Newfoundland government or summer to repair all this road and do work on this road. And they're not doing it. You know, if you had a the grader over there now don't have rakers on the great rake the road to tear the potholes out and then go over it again with fill, the potholes are going to be there all winter. And the road is deplorable right now. If there's a fire truck got to come in here, they're going to break it up. The same with an ambulance. The ambulance is going to refuse to come in here to get people. They'll have to bring them out to by the Brown Rabbit exit or the Mobile Side exit to get out. There's so no other way. This is a provincial yeah. high road. It's a provincial high road. Yes, it's a class three road. It's a secondary road, right? But uh, they don't seem to want to do anything with it, the government. I guess it's where we don't have a, a, a liberal member in on the southern shore, I suppose. I don't know. We haven't had a liberal member up the shore for a long time. Oh, a long, long while, yes. Yeah. You know. But uh, as of right now, there's somebody got to do something here on this road because it's deplorable. You're breaking up your own vehicles, ball joints and front-end alignments and everything else, and you can drive as slow as you want, Paddy. And there's no, still no... Nothing to degrade the road here a week before Christmas. They never put no fill or nothing on it. They just graded it, and the road is deplorable now again. And so, you when, you, when's the last time you had it done? We had it done a week before Christmas. Degraded Beachy Cove Road, and it's deplorable now again. Deplorable. I wish people from NTV or CBC come up here. And look what the mess of this road is in. We're third-class citizens up here. I guess you have to be uh, indigenous or Ukrainian or somewhere else to get stuff done because the people oh. in Torskov and Bichikov Road can't get nothing done but our road. No, sir. Well, I'm not sure that's helping. The way I look but, at it. Well, fair enough. Right. You look. I'm I'm say I'm not so sure that's helping your cause any. But I mean, attention to the high road. It shouldn't matter who you are, where you are, who you voted for, who's on the government side. None of that's that should right. matter. Yes. That yes, much it shouldn't matter. No, we're all liveries of Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm proud of it. But the road got to be done better than what it is. They're not doing it, and there should be money. We're paying taxes. Three or four cents for every liter of gas we buy, as you know, goes towards roads. And Beachy Cove Road is not getting much of that. And they got to spend three or four hundred thousand dollars on Beachy Cove Road to bring it up to par. 
as far as I'm concerned. That's my opinion. But like you, you can talk, Mr. O'Driscoll from minister, or he's not a minister. He's our MP. He's got to meet with Sivan Cody and the Minister of Transportation and get something done. We got to get funding for our road somehow to keep it up to grade because right now is deplorable. And if you had time, I'd go down and pick you up and bring you up and show it to you. You know. And then you know what I'm talking about. It's been a while since I've been on that road, but even the last time I was on it, it was we went and looked at a, a place where it was an Airbnb with a hot tub right close yeah. to the old government building. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate the time. Hopefully someone's listening. I hope somebody is listening, Paddy. Uh, you have a great day and Happy New Year. Same to you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much, You're sir. welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, yeah. Uh, last word goes to line number two. Philistine, you're on the air. Hi, Paddy. This is Philistine. Uh, Philistine, welcome to the show. Celestine, C-E-L-E-S-T-I-N-E. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Uh, happy New Year. Uh, just kind of, uh, I heard a caller there this morning talking about mental illness. His son or his, uh, or his brother was sick with schizophrenia. And uh, I was diagnosed as chronic paranoid schizophrenic when I was 21, and uh, that was uh, 34 years ago. So uh, I know a bit about the healthcare system and uh, been, through, been through most of it myself, by myself, uh, in the nineties, there was very little for health care. Uh, you had uh, you had your family doctor and psychiatrist in St. John's. Basically, you had to go see. And I spent a lot of days waiting to see my family doctor every day because I was basically home and afraid, uh, afraid to go home because I was sick and uh, didn't know how to, didn't know what to do about it. And uh, the medication in dim days were no good. Uh, it was uh, sedated you more or less than rather than help you and. Uh, Anyway, I dealt with psychiatrists in St. John's and, uh, and on the Bjorn Peninsula, and I, you know, I uh, I helped out, and I I went to schools and talked to kids about mental illness and that, and we done a we done a, a documentary called Changing Minds in the 1990s on Channel. It was uh, a documentary done by uh, by the Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, and they chose Marystown, the Channel Group in Marystown, to do the documentary on. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, we done it anyway, and uh, we had a big show in St. John's and that put it off and that. But uh, the man that was talking on the radio this morning about his uh, son, he wanted somebody to help him. Well, I mean, I've seen a lot of doctors. I mean, I know what it's all about. Uh, you know, they can only tell you what to do. you got to do it yourself. Um, a lot of people today are on drugs and alcohol and I'm sorry, but that don't mix with mental illness and, and your medication. Today they got good medication and they got a lot of support. I deal with the fact team here in Marystown and uh, they offer me a lot of uh, lot of support in every way, financial, mental, medical, everything, anything I could want they could give me, right? And uh, I think I think a lot of people miss out on the fact that you know they they, they think doctors want to hear their, your story. They they don't have time to hear your story. They hear stories every day. Uh, there's nothing new to them to hear a story. They don't want to hear a story. They want to know what's wrong with you and how you're going to get better. And you basically got to tell them what's wrong with you and tell them what it needs to get better because you really can't read your mind. Uh, it's not something that uh, they can do for you. It's, they can only tell you what to do. You got to do it yourself. I learned that a long time ago. And just because there's, I think there's a lot more to it uh, that we have time for today, and I really didn't realize how close we were to 12 noon. Do you by chance have time for us in the morning to paint the picture between the early 90s and today with mental health services? I certainly will. Oh, please do that. All right, thank you. Thanks for this. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
All right, well, we got through our first show of 2023 relatively unscathed, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.